Are we streaming? Should be. Oh shit! No intro. I oh you're not hearing it? Oh nope. Let me let me let me, let me restart that. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> extra extra content for the live listeners right there. I okay. Guess my my yes. uh, I guess my so audience these are settings. these are the bloopers. Fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah, I forgot. I had Fucking to, thing. I, I had to restart. The, oh, I see the problem right there. Okay. Sting is late. Yeah. Yep. All right, that should that should fix the problem right there. Let's try that again. All right. Live from a Gladio torture prison, it's the People's Square. I am your host, Borzoi. With me, as always, is Eric Stryker. Hello, Eric. Hi, how are you? So today, I was uh, I was doing my, my goatsy stretches, practicing for my CIA torture <laughs> session, God. coming oh. soon to, uh, to uh, America. Oof. I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but... Um, I don't want to see substance. it. I, I no, guess. no. <laughs> Not that. Um, but on Substack, there was a, uh, an article by a guy who does a lot of foreign policy stuff. I forget his name, but he was talking about Al Qaeda's new video. They re- they apparently released a video like a month ago. And, uh, the content in the video is, uh, we don't really have to do anything anymore because the United States government is going to start torturing, um, right wing Americans and they're just going to overthrow the government. So. Um, they're like, our, our job is done. We just sit and, and, uh, you know, watch, watch it over YouTube or something. That's, that's basically what the, the newest tactic for Al Qaeda is, is just, (laughs) is, uh, do nothing. So I don't know. Is that good news or bad news? Well, that's, that's the thing. We're in this weird, we're in this weird state of just kind of waiting and seeing, and there's always this sense that, you know, this, this can't last. And, it's funny because we're, you know, this book that we're going to be talking about, even he had the sense of this can't last, but they're, they seem to be just dragging this out as long as possible. Some, it, there's this constant sense that something has to give eventually. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, we should discuss that book right away if you want. Um, so it's been making the rounds again um, since the Capitol uh, storming. In, uh, in January, uh, this book has been flying off the shelves in China. Uh, it's extremely, it's an extremely big, big seller. Uh, it's written by a guy named Wang Huning, who is, uh, I don't know, maybe you know better. He, he, he has some kind of prestigious position. He's like in the Politburo, political bureau or something, right, in China. Yeah, He's I mean, like, I don't, I don't want to use this comparison because I don't, I think it gives for our people, it gives it more of a, of a gravitas than I think gets across, than what it's actually gets yeah. across. But if, if Xi Jinping is a Hitler type figure in China, then Wang Huning's kind of, I think a Joseph Goebbels type. And just in terms oh, of, he's the, he, he gives the intellectual weight to what's called, what's known as uh Xi Jinping thought. There's, there's three figures that have, that are deeply associated with kind of being, What's you know these these three premiers that are pushing China in the direction it's going? It's um, 
I think it's uh, Zhang Jiemin, uh, Hu Jintao, and then of course Xi Jinping, and he's kind of those guys are known as leaders. Wang Huning is known as more of the kind of giving this intellectual weight to what China, or at least a faction within China, is attempting to accomplish. Mm. Yes, um, and what's interesting about it is just the the, the way they they see the problems of modernity, and that's that's a big thing in the book. So basically, for some background, for anyone that didn't listen to Strike and Mike, I did talk about this with Mike, um, but Borzoi is, has actually read the whole book. I've read much of it. and I've read, only read part of the book because <laughs> I oh, didn't okay. know. But it, it's, Motherfucker, it's such a, it's why are all so, right-wingers lazy? You God didn't tell it. me about this until earlier today. I, had oh, to, I was driving God around today, but it's... I wish I could read it in a day. You're an Asian. A, you can read a book in one day. It's a very robust book. There's a lot. I'm only. I've only yeah. read the first five. Like I guess what you might call chapters or sections, and it's a, extremely heavy it's in chapter. terms of. Yeah, he of what he uh, gets into. It's an. It's it's the most empirical uh, diagnosis of life in America. So this guy came into the book. Uh, he got a special scholarship from an American university or some kind of think tank to come to the United States because he was very pro-America. He wanted to bring liberal democracy to China or figure out a way to combine it with the Chinese system. He was very much a big fan of Tocqueville and uh, Locke and, and all these different kinds of enlightenment thinkers. And he believed this would be good for China. So he came to America, he traveled across the country. Long story short, he went to China and uh, basically locked himself in his office and just dedicated the rest of his life since 1991 to making sure this system, this American system, never takes hold in China. <laughs> so that's the um, – let, let me just what, – what, what's so remarkable about this, what I really love about this, and this is how you know it's a good piece of academic writing, a good piece of journalism, is that it's so dispassionate. He just very – objectively doesn't take a side he just objectively describes all the problems of america economic social spiritual racial he describes racial he basically says black people will destroy america the, the black problem will cause america to essentially regress um let, let me just read you just this is sort of anecdotal but um this is this is a, a an excerpt. It's on page three thirty four, going to three thirty three thirty five. It goes: the black population is living in extremely poor conditions, and after desperate times, most of them take the path of crime. The crime situation of the whole society can be ranked among the top in the world, and blacks are especially strong. I heard a lot of stories about black people robbing Chinese people. A friend said that once he accompanied a colleague to a restaurant and met two black people on the stairs with knives demanding money. A Chinese student told me that crime is rampant on 42nd Street in New York, and the Chinese consulate in New York is just down the street. The criminals specialize in robbing Chinese people of their money. The NYPD had to put mounted police in front of the consulate, and the general police were no longer enough. And it says in parentheses, though I did not see any mounted police in front of the Chinese consulate general in New York. This was in broad daylight. There's a plethora of outstanding figures among blacks who have also become icons of social admiration 
athletes, singers, basketball players, softball players. That's probably a bad translation. <laughs> famous most black like, softball most likely. <laughs> Laquisha Jones. Famous. I remember uh, when boxers. I was growing up looking up to softball players. Yeah, softball, man. Oh, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, boxers and football players. But the overall status of blacks has not changed. The problems of the black population have constituted a cycle, a loop that is difficult to untangle. Blacks as a whole are less literate, economically inferior, have no control over childbirth, and the welfare system provides for children to receive government assistance. Blacks have a higher fertility rate than whites. Black children do not have – this is kind of outdated to be honest. Black, black, Black children do not have access to a good living environment or a good education. Because the previous generations was not well-educated and did not receive basic values, children are not naturally educated and nurtured. Growing up in the environment of black neighborhoods, they are subconsciously and psychologically unbalanced. Generations of blacks grew up without good skills and education and thus are unable to work in technically demanding positions. Many children have no parents or only one parent, often only their mother. Many children are born to child mothers. This is, again, pretty outdated in my opinion. They become pregnant and have children at the age of 14 or 15. How can such children get a good education? This situation is not uncommon in the black community. When they grow up, they can only work in lower-level jobs and do not receive higher financial remuneration. A few struggle to get out of this predicament, but then struggle to be accepted by the white society. This passes from generation to generation, making the snowball of black problems grow bigger and bigger. The black challenge is threatening society and the system. So far, the system has been weak or powerless to deal with this problem. As a a result of the system's inaction, a wave of anti-blackness is emerging. In the sense of what neoconservatives call, quote, inverted discrimination, I think that means reverse racism. Apartheid is history, but the black challenge is growing. The days of the KKK are behind us, but we cannot say they are gone. If society fails to find fundamental ways to improve the situation of blacks, it is likely to end up with more violent anti-black actions. It is a human weakness that when a problem cannot be solved, the most convenient option is to strongly oppose it. Almost every society has a similar problem where some people are considered inferior. But there may be different reasons for this problem, some from cultural differences, some from historical origins, some from customs, and some from the system. For, for the United States, this main reason is the system. So the black problem is a challenge of the social system. So he's he's not necessarily taking a IQ only position. He seems to think it's it's he has a more comprehensive view of of the situation of black. So there are parts of the book where he talks about like how the original Europeans that founded America um they they did not allow or enfranchise blacks and Indians because they didn't consider them to be civilized. And he said that, but he also says in that part that it's a challenge to have a democracy when there are big gaps in how civilized races of people are. So, again, very, again, you might, people might not agree with everything here, but very much, very, very much dispassionate, objective. You know, it's, it's amazing to see a, um, to see a, a an academic be able to discuss things without any ideological boundaries or precursors, like this is what actual intellectual freedom means. Uh, here's a, here's another part of the book 
he only talks about Jews very briefly, but this is very interesting. He says here, the, act, the activities of the lobbyists are often effective and significant. Israel, for example, has a very strong and effective platform. There are approximately 6 million Jews in the United States, but they have an above average level of education, social status, and political power. One of their major lobby organizations, APAC, and 75 members had 75 members and a budget of 5.7 million in 1985. Uh, so he's, he just goes on about how the different lobbies inform politics and the government has no power over them. So he, he's pretty. Um, oh, am, am I am I buffering? By the way, it's yeah. I'm trying to get a. It's both of us. I'm trying to get a setting that works. I'm working on the bit rate on this. I'm going with what Ooh. Odyssey is recommending, but gotcha, um, gotcha. Just gotcha, gonna have gotcha. to gonna have to deal with what we can here. No worries, no worries. Yes, okay. So yeah, so basically, um, I found all that to be very interesting. So this guy is um, essentially in charge. Uh, in case you didn't listen to Strike about this, this is the guy who is leading the purge against sissy boys and video games and all that stuff, right? And one, um, thing I want, one thing we should note for the chat as well, because some wrath in the chat said he had a bunch of 90s shit lip talking boards. This, this book was he his experiences were based on the 80s in America and the book was published in 1991. So if it sounds like something from the 90s, it's because it's something from the 90s. That's that's essentially why it's still it's still pretty, pretty um, contemporary, though, isn't it? Oh, you know, it's it's still very relevant because it's coming from the perspective of somebody who was deeply disturbed by what he saw in America and was trying to grapple with what was going on within his own country. One of the most telling sections within this is the way that he is both bewildered and fascinated by the presence of the Amish in the United States. Yes. Like he, the, <laughs> he, he's, just like, he, he's like looking at this like, how could... Because a big contrast in the first section is... The way, as a Chinese person, he's looking in America and in China, in his, from his perspective, China is it's innovation versus tradition. But to him, in America, innovation is tradition. And he finds this to be it's, – it's a kind of like a progressive futurist notion. And he finds it to be the most fascinating thing possible. And then he f discovers the Amish and how they thrive in America. And you would, he would think like, that. well, that's got to be in – like that has to be there's no way that something like that could survive in a country like America that crushes tradition yeah. and simple existence. And he wants to know like how can these group of people maintain who they are in the heartland of liberalism, of liberal dominance? He finds that to be the most fascinating thing he's ever discovered. And yeah. I, I, that I think that is the most telling passage, I think, to me, of what I've read so far of why he has such a huge influence on Chinese thought is because he's he sees that okay liberalism's not inevitable groups can right. actually maintain who they are even under a a dominantly Liberal liberal system. system so what do we take from that right and and uh, of course there's another chapter about the the concept of mystery um you know the the I, I think what what the the real translation is though is is um um, so, sort of like, you know, one, one thing about Christianity that certain people would criticize and other people would praise, but how Christianity may have, have actually helped 
hasten progress towards modernity and science and stuff is that Christianity actually takes the mystery out of nature, right? So people no longer believe that there's spirits living in trees and and water and 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 in uh, lakes and stuff and so or in the ocean and so they they they're able to build a boat and travel across the the ocean, right? So uh, he actually says that. You know, he says Americans have no belief in ghosts. Americans invent and conceive of many ghosts, probably more than any country in the world, but do not believe in ghosts. So th this is very interesting. So he says that <laughs> um, uh, America has a lot. I, I think what he's trying to say, and you, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but that um, the American materialist system is more even more extreme than Marxism in terms of demystifying nature and putting humans above nature, no? Well, that, yeah, that... I mean, because he talks about commodification, and he kind of makes a point that a lot of the postmodernists and Christopher Lash were making is that this, yeah. what you see in America is the absolute commodification of everything. And he doesn't, he kind of takes this dispassionate view and look up upon it, but... It, what's what's odd for us as Americans is I think is because we are just so used to this that our system and the way that it, it destroys everything like that's kind of essential to a person is completely right. bewildering and mystifying to literally everybody else in the world. It's it's such yes. a bizarre thing the way that yes. everything can be broken down it's, into these little units and that are then subsequently commodified. It's a, such a strange thing. There's also the element of everything in America feels synthetic, and it goes back to, to Robert Nozick's experience machine experiment. Have you, have you, do you know about that? I know who Robert Nozick is, but I don't, I'm not familiar yeah. with the concept you're referring to. Well, th this is actually the inspiration for The Matrix, the movie The Matrix. And essentially what it is is that uh, the, the experiment is that you ask people if they would prefer – a simulation of pure pleasure where you have all the sex and, and drugs and everything you need um, versus living in reality where you have to earn pleasure. And there's also negative sides to that. And what he found was that increasingly, well, not so, maybe in the 70s, there's somewhat more nuance with it. But essentially what's, what's going on is that a lot of people prefer the simulation they would rather be the 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 miserable person that's um hooked up to a machine that gets to just live a simulation of life over real life and i think the the american system with its video games and pornography and so on has sort of um mastered that no yeah think, I think mean, of that i mean this is general, this is yeah. this is i mean that's basically some of the points that Baudrillard was talking about with his ideas of, of the orders of, of simulacrum. And that's, that's what leads to the idea of hyper-reality, where you have the simulated notion of reality that's just so much more, it seems more real than what actual reality is. And so therefore, it's going to be preferable to anybody who engages with it. You know, and I think it's, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, the, uh, and I think so. In that context, what this guy is doing, and that actually is part of his critique of America, um, what this man is doing now in China with the video game ban and, you know, that, like now, for example, two men kissing in a, vid in a video game is illegal in China. Um, 
you know, the the main character, I forgot the name of the video game. It's like this huge sensation in China. In America, the, the video game character is like a, a homosexual who uh, wears like pink clothes and stuff. But the video game company had to alter his appearance to look more masculine for the Chinese market under government regulators' uh, orders. And so what, what the Chinese government seems to be doing is using force and state power to pretty much pull people out of the blue pill, so to speak, out of the um, experience machine and back into reality. And so what's going to happen is one day with this great power competition between the United States and China happening, one day we're going to wake up we're the, and we're going to have a Chinese man pulling the, v, the, the VR porn off our face with a gun on with a gun to your head. That's going to be <laughs> what's going to happen to the American society. OK, because if you if, if one side lives in reality and the other side is living in a simulation, well, guess who reality will will prioritize who's going to win right i mean do, do you think america has a chance against china in the cold war uh i mean it, i mean like a, ch a chance in what sense like america could essentially like america at least in its current paradigm is going to be about how do we poison a country enough to weaken it and that's right what they have to stand up against now we're getting into a weird Nukes add a a weird kind of factor to this because it gets to this end game, uh, you know, scenario where does it, a country that is the that was once the most dominant power are they the type to to lash out when they lose their total dominance or will they go you know a little bit more quietly into the night and that's the thing like nobody really knows we are in completely right. uncharted territory like this is when things we didn't when we didn't have factors like this it was easier to predict how a power that was kind of collapsing under its own weight what could be done like basically you had people that were you know rival powers picking up you know take picking up the parts that they wanted like take for example the ottoman empire when the ottoman empire was collapsing you had all these other dominant powers like well i want this i want that we're going to create these buffer states here here and there mm -hmm. that doesn't really make sense for how america operates so if america is you know if america actually does collapse like well what does what does that actually mean? What happens to that country? What happens to its arsenal? And nobody really knows what the answer to that question is. If I was the rest of the world, out. I'd be scared. Yeah, I'd no, be scared. I, well, that's what I talk about when, with the what I call the legitimacy crisis in the United States with the way that our government operates. The other other countries are looking at each other like, I don't know what's going on, but we can't. We got to do something about this country, like the, about what about the superpower because they have lost the plot. And nobody yeah. really knows what to do about it because you can't just ignore it. It's not we're not going to go away, and it's everything's up for grabs if that, something happens to this country. It, to my knowledge, isn't America's nuclear stockpile? It, it's like right by Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? That's where they, <laughs> that's where they have all the nuclear weapons. Yeah, no, mean, nobody, nobody really that knows. Place is, it's just a third world country. That it's just, it's like if when you New Mexico is a shithole, and um. The, the, the idea of America being in chaos and that stuff just being up in the air, 
you know, for like, I don't know, for, for MS-13 to use or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is the problem when your country nuclear turns into basically... MS-13. And this is what happens when you're... The problem when your country is like a nuclear-armed financial power institute where it's got this giant landmass, but the entire landmass is just treated as like a storage unit for the world. Yeah. It's like, okay, your, your nuclear financial power state is having problems. What happens to that giant landmass where all the stuff is stored as well? Like nobody, we're we're in a situation that nobody has ever dealt with before in the history of the world, yeah. and you have these countries that are now seeing like maybe America is not an inevitability after all. Not really sure what to do about all this. Is like that's how you end up with these weird situations, like Macron, for instance, who yeah. is like he's a total liberal Jew, you know. Like pawn of the Jews, banker type yeah. guy, but he's trying to chart an independent course for France that isn't under the total American paradigm because obviously he thinks that it's not going to work that way long term. So how do you maintain what France wants to do without America? That seems to be the chart he the 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 path he wants to chart. Is yeah. it going to be successful? Yeah. I don't know, but he's clearly looking ahead that America's not the inevitability. It's treated as well yeah and and you'll also notice that france has sort of overshadowed germany in the european union as a dominant power increasingly and i think that after this winter uh, i know if you've been following the news on this but there's going to be a massive energy crisis in europe this winter um and it's mostly their own fucking fault you know they they've sort of uh They've antagonized the Russians, who have the natural gas. The Russians are still get, sending them as much gas as they can, but you know they're not exactly in a rush to um, redirect the, the supplies that they send to Asia and to Brazil to Western Europe because, well, they keep threatening them. You know, like if you need something from someone, and then at the same time you're making impotent threats at them over Ukraine or whatever, well, you're probably, they're probably not going to be in a rush to, uh, you know, to send you extra natural gas. Now, I personally don't believe Putin when he says that he doesn't have any more. I think he is using Europe's um, gas, coming gas crisis for political gain. But why the hell shouldn't he? Right? Why the hell shouldn't he? He shouldn't. And so this is going to change things in in terms of because increasingly you're seeing that American interests, Washington's interests, kind of um, contradict Europe's interests. And so you're going to see increasingly that there's going to be drifting apart on that front. And I don't think the NATO alliance is going to be enough to um, to mitigate that which is why the United States is kind of closing off into sort of like an international ghetto of the, of the, of the Anglosphere, Australia, Britain, and America, and Canada, but drifting away and even undermining in some, in some contexts uh, the, the French who lost tens of billions of dollars over that submarine deal to Australia. You know, So yeah, the world is going to be very different, and, and most of it is because of China's rise, you know? It's going to be very different in the near future. Um, what, what do you think? What, what, what are some of the things we can expect in this new paradigm? Well, it's 
<laughs> NJP exposed. Get your get your uh, your clipping oh. ready because oh, I mean, this, this, this is the kind of stuff that listening. this is. I mean, I I've I've only flipped through like Dugan's fourth political theory just to understand. Oh, you just said you just said he's now gonna <laughs> say two more times in the mirror, and he appears. <laughs> but this perfect. is. This is the stuff that these that China and Russia, because they're just naturally the European Union doesn't isn't cohesive enough at this time to be any kind of dominant polarity. So that kind of leaves by default China and Russia to look at what a post America world looks like. And I think that the conclusion, at least some of the people that are trying to drive this stuff in these countries are getting towards is that. It's going to be a kind of illiberal, but also post-ideological world. Like this idea of, at least at this current time, who knows? Maybe something you know, you might see some worldwide revolutions of, of thought here. But the way it's looking yeah. is like it's not about fascism, it's not about communism, it's not about liberals, it's not about any of these things. Like fundamentally, like because of the damage that the liberal order has done to the world for stability's sake, you need these illiberal somewhat autocratic countries at least to guide things away from the direction that america that american liberalism has plunged the world and that's i think the direction that you're going towards i think macron is actually a great example of the soul searching and i hate him i mean like let me be clear i absolutely despise him and what what he's doing but like he he's the i think he's kind of the premier example of this kind of soul searching that that these elites are elites are doing is like well okay this isn't working anymore. America is not going to work in this paradigm anymore. So what do we do to maintain our power and our vision? Obviously, we have to change. Um, we have to correct course. And that's yeah, the way they're well, looking at this type of thing. The, the thing is, it, it's not just Macron. I think Biden, believe it or not, is a post-liberal president. And what I mean by that is his administration is, you know, let's just say this. The contact, the the, the concept of liberalism in America is dead. Okay, you you know, whatever the Chinese are doing, people are saying that the government there is cracking down on liberal values or cracking down on big business or cracking down on gays and feminists and miscegenation, all, all the things. Right. But as that's happening. Our system is actually putting the pedal to the metal in the opposite direction. It's just as post-liberal, right? It's just as illiberal what they're doing. But they are – it's kind of like a super liberalism that isn't liberal. You know, for example, today I was reading – in the the, the last few days, I was reading uh, an article about the treatment of the January 6th protesters, right? And there's a judge, uh, Lamberth. Royce Lambert, who ruled and demanded that the Department of Justice investigate what the U.S. government is doing to January 6th defendants that are still in jail, that were denied bail, because he had before him um, uh, what one one issue, which was that there's a man, I think his name is Christopher Wartrell, who is basically being killed. By the D.C. jail system, he has cancer and he's not being treated. And he's been there since January. Okay, he's been there for many months. 
He was being treated for cancer. The judge um, didn't allow him to have bail. He entered the Capitol and he slapped a cop or something. And the jail system, the American prison system, is not doing its part in in its very fundamental and basic um, duty, which is to treat prisoners for serious illnesses. Uh, this same man also had his wrist broken. How did it happen? We don't know. I still have to look through the, the court documents on this. But he had his wrist broken while in solitary confinement. Um, so he's basically being murdered by the Biden administration. And the judge was was calling for, for a Department of Justice. Uh, oh, is it is it that it's lagging? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what people want me to do. I mean, oh, these are the settings that Odyssey told me to do, go with. I don't know is it, how to. Is it Odyssey? Well, Would it be it, too much of a problem to start? I hate to do this, but start streaming on the YouTubes. I, I mean, if I do that, I'm going to have to kill. I can't. That's we, fine. It's yeah, fine. I, people just just listen to the just listen to this uh, afterwards and or something if it's too unbearable. But um, yes, um, essentially the the Bill of Rights and the Constitution have been completely eroded, and we are seeing the very illiberal practices starting to take form in the United States. They're state sanctioned. What I say to people, you know, a lot of people were kind of dismayed by my CIA torture report that we did on Strike and Mike, where we talked about how the CIA was capturing men that were actually innocent. They captured a Palestinian man. This is being fought over at the Supreme Court. And they sodomized him. They hung him upside down from hooks. They fucking put him in a coffin-shaped box for hours. They made him they, – they deprived him of sleep for 11 days straight. Um, you know, really just barbaric treatment. And what I would say, Borzoi, is think of this. Let's say tomorrow people at the, at the FBI and the Department of Justice say, listen, we need to use enhanced interrogation techniques against Trump supporters and white nationalists and militias because we're not getting the intelligence we need. Do you think anyone at the Department of Justice – I mean can you think of a, of a scenario where someone in the Department of Justice would go, you can't do that to the Nazis. You can't do that to the racists. That's illegal. That's against the Constitution. Can you actually – do you think that there's someone in this day and age at the Department of Justice or in the, in the intelligence services that would actually say that? I don't. I mean, I, I don't. Mean, I don't I think just, anyone. I would, I would just say it's that's always been that way. <laughs> Maybe it's just because like I, I just no. got off of I just came off of reading about uh, what was it, um, Poisoner in Chief about Sidney Gottlieb and the kind of stuff that they oh, were the the tor like the torture programs they were running immediately post World War II. But the, you know, you can get enough people to say like, well, like, well those were Nazi, those were actual Nazis. So what we everything we did was justified. It's like, no, America's always done this stuff. It's just that people don't want to admit it. Like, like the people, the people who are in power, at least in my view, are the same as they've always been. They're just a lot gayer or more open about yeah. how gay and pedophilic they are. Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, dull, like what was his name? I can't. Uh, it was, um, and he was uh, he was also connected with a. Uh, you might know what I'm talking because I posted on Telegram. He was also connected with a Jewish banking family, but he was he was a agent for the CIA, and the Dulles was more was well aware he was a pedophile. Like I mean, these are the people the United States government has employed in power to engage in their torture programs for more than seventy years. It's just now it's more out in the open, and people don't want to admit. Like maybe maybe we aren't the good guys doing good guy stuff after all. Oh. No. 
I think what's changed is that it's now more out in the open, um, you yeah. know, and I think it's also more extreme than it was before. You know, I, I mean, I, I've on my on my website on, on the hyphen, I, I've been covering for, for months now very closely all of the child molesters and rapists and extortionists and stuff that are in the FBI, sometimes operating for years, committing these crimes. Uh, the, for example, the most shocking one was Harris in uh, in Louisiana. He was a uh, part of the New Orleans field office of the FBI in charge of investigating child pornography. And he himself is a violent serial pedophile. OK, so the, the question is, like, if it's just one bad apple, then you can say, OK, there's bad apples in every organization. But when it becomes a pattern, right, it, it, then you start to think, OK, they're selecting for people like this. I mean, the FBI is a very, very meticulous psychological survey that they do for new recruits. They, they test you in every way. They do all kinds of background investigations and so on. So the fact that so many bad apples, so many people, especially the weird sexual crimes against children stuff, like, you know, the fact that there's so many of them in the FBI, you know, I, I was thinking about it again because when I was reading on the CIA's torture of these men, uh, I saw a court document that showed that the CIA and, and the, the lawyers that were writing this document were being very charitable. They were complaining that the people that were sodomizing and torturing and beating and humiliating and all, all that stuff, these, these detainees, that a lot of them were previously convicted of rape and sexual assault, a lot of the interrogators. Now, the CIA – knows that kind of stuff they were complaining that there was um insufficient background checks uh for these interrogators but i mean is it is it safe to say that they were choosing sickos on purpose i mean to me absolutely <laughs> i guess because i i guess because of just what i got off of reading i mean yeah that's exactly who who they select for him uh, i'm trying to remember what his name was like it was um I think it was Charles White who was the one who who really pioneered MK Ultra's Operation Climax. And you sometimes like hear people talk about Operation oh, Operation Midnight Climax, and you sometimes hear people talk about Operation Midnight Climax because it's kind of infamous as being the uh, the one where they were giving servicemen LSD without them knowing. And then, oh yes, uh, they were watching them through like a remember the mirror. golden age of serial killers was 1960 to the 1990s, and many of them served in Vietnam. I I love that you brought that Enormous. up, Striker, because that's yeah. been my fate. Like that has been something I've talked about, and that's kind of serial my, killers my, have almost my, disappeared. My cons like I believe that the serial killer is a social construct in the sense of it's a media construct, and that a lot of yeah. the serial killers. The, the fact that the, so many of them have a high degree of homosexuality and military background is extremely right. suspicious to me. The amount of people that, I mean, like even um, I think like Ted Bundy, I mean, like Ted Bundy was also going to, is going to lie a lot as well. But I mean, even he, like there's been circumstantial evidence that he wasn't alone in the stuff and some of the stuff that he huh. did. So, I mean, this stuff has covered it in, uh, in program together. Like that basically there were people that helped, cover up his crimes. Now, some of the stuff is in Dave McGowan's program to kill, and you got to take some of his stuff with a grain of salt. Yeah. But I mean, like, I mean, the he, idea... here's just a list. Here's just a list of, of, 
of homosexuals and homosexual serial killers and just serial killers in general that had served in the military. Uh, David Berkowitz. Yep. Gary Ridgway. I believe Gary Ridgway served in Vietnam, right? Yes, he did. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer. Dennis Nielsen. Dean Coral. Timothy McVeigh. Well, that's not a serial killer. That's fucking stupid. He's on this list. <laughs> uh, so anyway, there is a pattern. BTK killer. Um, Dennis Rader. Yep. And he also, I believe, um, he, he was in the Air Force, which is actually the U.S. Air Force seems to be also something that attracts a lot of uh, weird experiments and stuff. The intelligence branch of it. Um which is kind of counterintuitive. But the point is, though, is that, yes, a lot of serial killers specifically served in the Vietnam War. And there there have been people who have theorized that they're part of the Phoenix program. Well, which, let, as let, we've let, talked about. Yeah, let's be just like they're not always listed as having served in Vietnam. What's the main thing right. is that they have a military background, which doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't serve in Vietnam, but they right. always are very careful of how they state in the with what they state in the records because they want to avoid any kind of connect possible connection to something say like the Phoenix program. Yes, yes. So for anyone that missed Strike Your Bike last week or earlier this week, sorry. Uh, the Phoenix program was a CIA uh, counterinsurgency operation meant to crush the Viet Cong through terror and assassinations. And it it's believed that they've killed up to 80,000 people in Vietnam. And they mostly dealt with things like reprisal killings. Like, you know, if, if for example, My Lai, right, is a famous incident. The way the, the, the Jewish media presented My Lai was that it was a bunch of rednecks that were just raping and pillaging for fun. Uh, there's tons of circumstantial evidence to suggest, however, that the My Lai massacre was actually part of the Phoenix program. And actually, these guys were just taking orders to do this um, from from the U.S. military. So this is part and because the Viet the, the, the conflict in Vietnam was so chaotic, uh, very few people were able to cover. And also they 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 leaned on the South Vietnamese military and members of it, including criminals uh, in South Vietnam, to operate in the Phoenix program. That way they didn't get their hands dirty directly all the time. But yes, uh, and as we, we as we talked about, there's a book, uh, a guy named Valentine wrote a book about the, the Phoenix program where he basically described the most horrific things. They were raping, they were, they were detaining groups of, of people, of villagers they suspected to be Viet Cong, and they would make them watch one of their their uh, neighbors get raped by an eel or raped and killed. Um, you know, even things that are portrayed as the Viet Cong doing to U.S. military, the U.S. military was doing to them, too, like playing Russian roulette, having them play Russian roulette um, and so on and so on. Oh, yeah, so they picked the, it in the Deer Hunter of, as well. Yes, that was in Deer Hunter. And they don't show that, hey, the U.S., and the CIA were doing this to the VCs as well. Who the hell knows? They may have even learned it from them. Okay. So the, the safe to say, you know, the Hanoi hotel was, uh, the Hanoi Hilton, as they called it was pretty horrific, but the, um, being detained by the United States as a Viet Cong was not much better. Okay. It was pretty much the same. And so the fact that this has kind of been forgotten, like, 
if you watch the Ken Ken Burns documentary on this kind of stuff, every time he mentions um, this kind of activity done by the CIA and the U.S. military in Vietnam, he always tries to balance it out by saying, "But but the Viet Cong also did this." Okay, why can't we have a discussion about the kinds of atrocities our government is doing, and why the hell is no one no one going to the Hague for it? Why is Milosevic? Why was there a Nuremberg trial? And why is why did Milosevic get pinched, put up on fucking war crimes trials, and not anyone? I mean, no American, I, to my knowledge, in history has ever been convicted of war crimes, right? Uh, like convicted, like by international like, like, like an courts. Ind- yeah, prop by an international court, probably not. No, because I think a lot of that stuff is tried in house. Like when you have a soldier committing war crimes, I think that's been tried in house. So I think you're correct. I think I don't think there's been an right. American that's been tried on. Well, I mean, why is it? Why is America since from World War Two to, to Korea to Vietnam well, to even well, now and after that, they've we're, never we're, committed a war. We're, we're good guys and we do good oh, guy things. So why would we ever be tried for war crimes? We're, we're the good guys doing good guy things, right? And, and the problem the problem with the partisanship in our country is that when these issues come up, you have the you have the the idiot side and the anti white side, right? So the anti white side is the left, and so they see Lindy England making human pyramids out of Iraqis at Abu Ghraib. And what what was the actual narrative on that? The narrative was that Lindy England is a redneck or a hillbilly from like, I think she was from like West Virginia. And this is what white trash people do when you're not watching. When us, when, when the, the uh, sensitive and superior and ethical Jews aren't watching, this is what rednecks do to people, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's actually tons of evidence to show that what Lindy England was doing was part uh, and parcel of types of things that happened to prisoners systematically under American um, when they're detained by the United States government. Right. So, yeah. And again, Milai was the same thing. They blamed, oh, these are just Hicks and they, this is what Hicks do, blah, 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 you know. And then on the other side, on the left, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, on the right, you get morons like Andrew McCarthy saying, "Oh, this guy, you know, be, you know, sometimes you gotta, you know, break some eggs to make an omelet, you know." And he focuses a lot. Andrew McCarthy at the National Review, he was discussing the Supreme Court case I, I mentioned about CIA torture, and he was defending it. And what's so irresponsible and idiotic about defending that kind of shit in the current year is that they're fucking this close. My camera's not not uh, on right now, but they're this close. Um, to pretty much fucking doing it to Andrew McCarthy's readers. They were yeah, doing I mean, it hard. If, if, if Lindy England and Lieutenant Kelly did what they did to white Americans, you would have liberals and, and conservatives falling over themselves to pin medals on their chests. Oh, yeah. Both of them. Yeah. Both of them would be defending it. I mean, I, I'm just really astonished by how how pathetic the conservative movement has been in defending the January 6th people. Okay, remember, the conservative movement, the, the, the conservative senators that once in a while will make some noise about things, like remember uh, Josh Hawley, who he's a great politician, right? Josh Hawley is actually a politician that is really talented, really charismatic, really articulate, actually probably too articulate for MAGA 
he's probably too. MAGA, the, a lot of the the kind of inst, the the kind of like new iteration of MAGA that prizes being dumb over everything. They they look at Josh Hawley and they just see a libtard trying to trick them. But anyway, and of course, the Josh Hawley is a total fraud. All you got to do is look at who's funding him. And you see that, you know, he's, he's got tons of uh, big business interests and Jewish interests. And you, you see the angle that he just wants to be president. But nevertheless, Josh Hawley did great confronting the, the cat lady that is like the second in command at the Department of Justice. She works under the Jew Garland. And uh, essentially, he was like saying, like, how dare you send the FBI after parents? who just want to have some say in what's taught to their children, right? Great stuff. Great performance by Mr. Hawley. I, I'll, I'll give him 10, 10 Academy Awards for that. Here's the problem. The problem is that Josh Hawley, as senator, has the power to defund the – to at least present a bill to defund the FBI, okay? Now, it doesn't mean it will be successful, but he has the power to do it. So why the fuck doesn't he do it, Right? And this is it. This is the issue with conservatism, and this is why we're we're, we're we have so much work ahead of us uh, in terms of undoing the damage that they have done to our country and to our race, and 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 the situation they've put us in. Like we might actually just be killed and thrown into a pit. You know, people of European descent in the United States could one day be put in concentration camps. That's not outside of the realm of possibility. Um, and the reason we're going, we could be there one day and one day soon is because of the Republican Party. Because even though it'll be the left and the Jews on the, on the Democrat side that will be doing that bit, the people that hold this back, the people that, you know, in the 80s and 90s when people were fighting over, you know, remember Alan Bloom, right? Uh, books like, you know, J Jews are writing about this. Uh, the Closing of the American Mind is another one. And all these books about the fight for a academia in the 80s and 90s, how political correctness was destroying uh, academia. And they were writing it from a controlled opposition standpoint to get the, the scent, to get the, the dogs off the Jews, right? The, the people that were sniffing around, get them, uh, th throw a hunk of meat at them. But nevertheless, when this was debated, the conservative movement started telling people to not go to college, right? Now, here we are. They're still doing it, right? They're still telling people to not go to college. But then five minutes later, they complained that every lawyer, every prosecutor, every FBI agent, every fucking judge, every scientist, every academic, every everyone. Everyone with any kind of power is a liberal and a violent liberal at that. In some cases, they're not they're not really liberals. They're actually leftists or cultural leftists or whatever you want to call them. But they're not really liberal. They, they, they want to destroy people. And I actually read uh, something very interesting on Matthew Glesses' substack. He's the, the Jew that uh, left Vox because he realized that if, if, if his byline is on Vox, just no one's going to read it. So he's, he's left also, Vox. He's also the insane Jew who wants to have there to be a billion Americans. A billion. Billion with a yes. B. Yes. Yes. The same guy that believes in climate change wants to multiply the population and thus 
carbon emissions by <laughs> hundreds of times. By, by the way, I think I, I fixed the buffering issue, so oh, it looks like it's wonderful. smoother now. Awesome, awesome. So Matthew Glesses actually has, because he actually, again, only Jews and Nazis know what's happening in America. And uh, Matthew Glesses actually um, wrote a piece recently responding to the conservatives that tell their fans not to go to college. And the crux of his article was that this is awesome because it means now that 100% of the elite are going to be like Zionist super liberals. <laughs> so, so he was celebrating that. <laughs> um that's all you need to know. Like, don't ever listen to conservatives and reactionaries. Listen to Jews. They're like, you know, the other day, for example, some 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 National Review moron was writing about they took Superman from us. They took Superman. They made Superman woke. And Matthew Glesses wrote very, very true what he wrote. He said, let me find that, actually. Yeah, that Superman uh, was always woke. It's like he's always been that way from the very start. Yeah. Well, he said Superman is, a, is was created by – he said, I cannot emphasize enough that Superman was created by Jewish New Dealers and has always been woke. Yeah. 100%. Well, here, and, here, and I'm, I'm going to add a little bit for people who don't know this as well, and most people don't know this, is that Superman's also a ripoff. Uh, so there was a, it, it, there was a novel before the creation of Superman. It was called – I believe it was called Gladiator. And it's but the, the if I'm wrong about the title, the author is Philip Wiley. Philip Wiley wrote a character. When you read this, it is definitely a Superman <laughs> archetype. He wrote, but he wrote it as this examination of how horrific it would be to be a Superman and how disconnected you would be from normal people. It's like a pulp type novel. I've actually read it. It's an interesting book, and it's. There's a convincing case that these Jews basically took that concept from Philip Wiley and ripped it off entirely in order to create their own, you know, Jewish power fantasy off of that. But I mean, yeah. from the very start, it's always been like Superman's always had the shittiest opinions possible because he's a Jewish construct. Right. And and here's the thing, you know, I think the conservative movement has actually gotten more retarded in the last five years. So now they're bickering over a Superman that never existed. Right. But you see them actually doing this with other figures, Thomas Jefferson, Martin Luther King. You know, I, I don't know, but I, I was recently reading um, Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. Have you ever heard of this document? Uh, yeah, actually, I've read the entire thing and did and did it as part of my deep yes. dive for uh, so Thomas Jefferson. When, That's why I like when him. you hear when you hear conservatives talk about Thomas Jefferson, what do they say? They say, well, not all the founding fathers were pro-slavery. Thomas Jefferson believed in the abolition of slavery. But and in that, and they're right about that. However, what else did he say about that? Well, Thomas Jefferson's logic for abolishing slavery is that he didn't want blacks in the Americas. <laughs> yeah, he basically his 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 view was that they the the United States needed to abolish slavery and quickly deport all blacks to Africa mm -hmm. to 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 to, yeah. to avoid a future problem. All, so all, conservatives all, I mean, will just Jefferson leave that part out. Yeah, Jefferson has pro has a lot of problems as president, but early Jefferson very base. Like you read his, you read I, I, that's when I did the deep dive on Jefferson. That's why I have I was very fond of him because I worked on all the early stuff, not the later stuff. 
from him. Yeah. Young Jefferson was very much concerned with the idea. Like he can, he sometimes like described as libertarian, and there are those kind of like qualities within his stuff. That's why he developed that way. But he was very much concerned with the idea of the yeoman, and he had a lot of sympathy for the for the yeoman. He saw that as, a, as an extension of the Anglo-Saxon race. And so when you right. read the notes on, uh, um, on the state of Virginia, like he's looking at this like, how do we improve the quality? of the whites within our state how do we right. empower more people more yeoman to basically become you know become what they are and it's it's yes. a very fascinating document I mean, for that also, reason he also didn't believe this about american indians he actually thomas jefferson actually called for uh whites and indians to mix to, to yeah, mix the I'm, indians out he called yeah. these things like which is whatever is he, 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 he was bleach right he wanted to, he wanted to bleach he wanted bleach to bleach the bleach. <laughs> he's he like let's, to bleach he the said, let's absorb the indians out of existence um but when it came to blacks he was very adamant about sending them back to africa like that was why he was against slavery and, and you'd be surprised a lot of there you know lincoln perfect example also believed that he or at least said he believed. Also, it. very like he was. Maybe this is also why I like Jefferson on some level. He was a true yeah. autismo. He had an actual mathematical yeah. formula. He had an actual yeah. mathematical formula for what de- for when a person stops being white and becomes black. Like he oh actually, God. like he actually had had written this out of what is the exact amount of of admixture that differentiates a white and a black person. I think yeah, I, re- I remember seeing something like that. That yeah. shit cracks me up. Yeah. So fun, they, they they were fun. fucking. So where where are the what do the conservatives think of that? You know, on some <laughs> level, Thomas Jefferson was more r- radical or more extreme on racial issues than even I am. So why am I locked out of out of the discussion by these gatekeepers and not TJ? TJ is your fucking the person you claim you defer to. Um, yet. People that have a more nuanced uh, perspective on race or not, and and how about the the fake Martin Luther, like the the fantasy Martin Luther King, this si- si- simulation Martin Luther King that only exists in the fucking fantasy world of uh, of, of right wing morons in the institutions, people in think tanks, this Martin Luther King that would be outraged at like the George Floyd riots, like you know I, I was talking about this I think last week where. Um, uh, well, one of some some like GOP operative was was complaining about the George Floyd statue being next to uh, Lewis. You know that the, the, the civil rights man Lewis. Um, and he was saying, "How dare you put George Floyd next to him?" Meanwhile, that guy, the guy that that he was talking about, is like was alive during the George Floyd riots, and he was rooting for the rioters. <laughs> so it's just so stupid. It's so dumb. You know, yeah. I mean, at least at least Jews and libtards, they live in reality. You can actually have you can actually like dispute and possibly have a, a struggle, a political war with the, the problem is, though, is that as long as conservatives are taking up space, as long as they're taking up space, there can never be an intelligent discussion on any issue in this country. OK, because well, they will. Yeah, I was going to say that's what that's why that why this America against America is just so refreshing. I mean, he is a, he is an intellectual. And so some like. I, I, you know, if you don't know, uh, he he does approach things from a socialist economics. He talks about Marx a lot, and like so, if you're not familiar with the concepts, that can be a little bit of a slog. But there's a robust honesty to what he's saying, which makes it so refreshing. If you don't understand the economics part, just skip it. Like he talks a lot of cultural stuff in the book, and that's very fascinating to hear an outsider talk about this stuff. Yeah, 
and, and, it, and it rings true. It's all these things that people have the feeling, uh, but they can't articulate it. And this actually helps articulate it in its own way. So uh, I think that essentially it's a must read. And it shows you how censored our society is that this book has never been formally translated into English. It would be interesting to see how one would be one would be able to get the rights to it and do a, an actual translation of it. I mean, even Antelope Hill or something, because this is a must read because, it, you know, it's like, you know, America lecturing the world on how to live while missing the big old beam in its own eye, the big old the big old rainbow dildo in its eye. Right. You know, the world just laughs increasingly. And, and you know, what's funny. The sad thing is. A lot of people in the United States right now are starting to get it, but there's still a large portion of people that are just like, wait, why is everyone laughing at America? Why, why you know? Well, I, as, as, yeah. I can, well, I can tell you somebody who, who does talk to a lot of people, what the most, the most fascinating thing I'm starting to see, like the, the people who are extremely pro-America, a lot of them still exist, but if they're not like really like, I'm a political type who, you know, just yeah. votes Republican constantly down the line or or something like that, you are seeing people who have right-wing tendencies becoming a lot more vocally anti-American. And when I talk yes. to liberals that I know, and I'm talking about like more centrist-type liberals, when you talk about radical politics with them, when you talk about the notion, and you're just very vocal about how awful America is— from a not and I hate to use this terminology, but from like a non woke perspective, they're freaked out by it. They're extremely oh, yeah. freaked out by the idea that you can hate America for just for any reason. That's like, oh, it's not. It's just it, it's not doing justice enough. They well, they the, find the reason, it frightening. The, the reason why it's important to cover what the Chinese are doing to crack down on the depravity and decay that's seeping into their country is that people often only learn by seeing something. We have this tendency in America to be the fat man who thinks it's impossible to lose weight because he can't stop eating, right? It's just not in the realm of possibilities that you can lose weight, uh, you know? And, and so not, not understanding that it's also a matter of discipline and human will too, you know, and so America is kind of that in a in a larger context. In that, the the American right in particular thinks that because they can't or won't imagine a solution to things like drag queen story hour, which is that the government just bans it, they can't or won't imagine it. They they don't want to imagine it, and so they just say it's impossible. You have to live with it. You know, David French. He's like, you know, well. Well, everyone's got their rights and so on. Oh, yeah? What does the left think of that? Does the left think you have rights? No. Maybe David French because he says – because all he says is that they, they're allowed to do whatever they want. But if you look at China, the Chinese government, they, they can do things really fast, right? They can do things really fast. So if they decide that young people playing these re retarded video games is destroying them. It's making them incels. It's making them autistic. It's making them all these things. They can just on a dime say, you're going to play video games three hours a week. And furthermore, they're also trying to stop basically 
what the Chinese government is trying to do is to stop their young men from becoming gay nerds because they're also outlawing the tutoring schools. I don't know if you've, if you've been following this, but um, part of it is because the tutoring schools became an outlet of Judeo-American influence. There's a lot of Jews that work in these, <laughs> so, for example. So I can actually yeah. give, I can actually give you some insight into that because I in there's a there's a, an equivalent in Korea called the called and I don't know what their legality is now. It's been a long time since I've dealt with them, but I did I did spend a when anyways I don't people don't I don't need to go my background on this, but I spent a stint working at what's called a hagwon in Korea, which is these private cram. Uh, yes, the academies, yes. and that in China and Japan have them as well. Uh, it, at least in Korea, it's it, for the time that I worked there, they were very, very unregulated. And yeah, like that was basically because what of are they how, like? So what it, what it essentially is, is what, what how these cram schools work is that usually there's two subjects that they primarily focus on, which is English language and in uh. and mathematics, because those are the two that that usually students need the most tutoring in as the required subjects. Like nobody really needs tutoring, like social studies, for instance. So right. they focus very heavily on that kind of stuff. And so part usually it ends up being that you have a at least in in Korea you have a a. T, a actual Korean teacher, an actual Asian teacher who knows the language and kind of explains it from the Korean's perspective. And then you have the immersion aspect and ostensibly the English teachers are supposed to help with the, the grammar and the conversational aspect and help clarify certain things that might not be intuitive to the Korean speaker who knows it. But I can tell you as, and I know a lot of people as well who went through all of this stuff is that because of how high in demand these schools are you end up with the what essentially what you ended up with up with was people with liberal arts degrees who had nothing better to do and they were paying ah. good money so they went overseas but because there were so many of them it's not like the like this one person is in this little town and now now like oh they're the funny foreigner in town it's like no you create these little ghettos of overproduced elites, basically, with really mm -hmm. shit, with most likely very shitty, awful opinions, and they got together, and a lot of them uh, were able to build a base off of that. I don't know what amazing, the current state yeah. in these countries are. It's been a long time since I've been over there, but I can tell right. you, as somebody who was there ten years ago, you had this shitty base of liberal expats that didn't have to interact at all with the with the actual ethnic community and basically formed a diaspora community of libtards who wow. had their, who had their yes, own stuff that going explains on. it yep. that explains it yes that that explains that the the because what i was reading is that the because someone was telling me that there was like a documentary made about the tragedy of the chinese government shutting down cram schools right and I think the the emphasis was that they're they're afraid of the outside world, they're afraid, and the real answer is that you got a bunch of blue-haired people, like blue-haired grad students or whatever, that can't find a job in America, and so they go to China and they spread subversion. Yep. And you better believe that there's a CIA element to that. Like that's not just 
Well, the, it, it, I, well, absolutely as well, because some of the programs were also sponsored by the government. In Japan, they had what was called the Epic. Oh, I'm trying to, I can't remember. Well, no, Japan was Jet Program, and I think Korea was Epic Program. I don't know what China's programs were because I was never over right. there, but I know they would have probably had very similar things to that because, like, a lot of these kind, like every every country was different. But when it comes to China, Japan, and Korea, they kind of all operate at least with the English language stuff pretty on a, on a pretty similar paradigm so you have the private cram school stuff and those were allowed to operate kind of independently but the stuff that was like jet and epic had to operate under the gut like was operated through the government so you, act, oh. you had the actual governments of japan and south korea involved in that and so of course american money is also going to flow into that so and I, I can tell you from my experience a lot of the people who were more basically if you were in the private cram school you were more the runoff if you were in a jet or epic program you were somebody that the was a little bit more system approved i would put it that way interesting right so look at look at that right so the chinese government decides that they're getting paused their youth are being paused they're being instructed in homosexuality feminism miscegenation, global globalism in, in the in the cultural sense of cosmopolitan. They're being instructed in values they don't agree with. So they just fucking ban the thing. They ban it. Why can't we do that here? I mean, this is the thing. Like conservatives want to make China the bad guy. They want to saber rattle at the Chinese. Well, the question is though, why don't you like why don't you look at what they're doing and model the next Republican government off of that? And the answer is that they're shills. That's it. There's no other answer at this point. Because if the Trump administration in 2016 was serious about what it campaigned on, it would have gotten those those things done. OK, it just would have. And it would have done it similarly to China. You can do these things. OK, you just can. If you have government power, you can do these things. Now, America, as Wang Huning might say, has the problem of plutocracy where he complains, not complains, but observes that business interests are more powerful in the government. So I guess that is a kind of mitigating circumstance. I get that's the only real check and balance on American power, really. And it's just a check and balance in favor of Jewish corruption and oligarchy. Um, but, you know, because because actually, to be fair, the courts don't really work. Federal courts do not respect your rights. I mean, I just wrote about this the other day on the hyphen. Um, there, there was a very clear Supreme Court ruling about – um, free speech for students, that students have First Amendment rights when they're off campus. Well, there's a student that was expelled from his school by the Anti-Defamation League. He's a public school student that was expelled from school by the Anti-Defamation League. Specifically, the ADL went to the school. He was originally suspended for five days, but then the ADL got involved and said, no, you have to expel him. And they did. And it was over a, a, a really harmless joke about Jews that he wrote on Snapchat. And you know, reading reading the um, the court documents, I didn't put all this in the article, but reading through the court documents, this kid that did this went through the fucking gauntlet. He did a marathon of sucking up to Jews, and they still expelled him. Like he went to a Holocaust museum. He wrote a, a, a book report on on Anne Frank. He fucking he did everything he could to try and get the Jewish community off his back, 16-year-old kid, and uh, and they fucked him anyway, okay? They fucking kicked him out anyway. So he was suing the school. He filed a lawsuit, and 
the federal the federal courts in Colorado refused to even hear it. They just dismissed it. This is a cut and dry case of First Amendment speech. He was not on campus and they just refused to hear it. So now they're appealing it. They have a Supreme Court precedent under their arm for the appeal. And so I, I'm, I'm actually watching this with great curiosity to see if they'll actually uphold his rights. Supreme Court clearly said students have First Amendment rights off campus. So if they don't grant him the appeal, the question is, what the hell can people do about it? Right? Like, what can be done? There's, there's really nothing at that point. And that's what I mean about America becoming post-liberal, right? And so, yeah, like th that's something that I don't see anyone writing about in general, about America's, you know, even, even on things that I don't think are bad things, um, you know, there, there really wasn't much of a fight over raising the debt ceiling, right? Um, you, you see these big, ambitious infrastructure projects from the Biden administration putting money in people's pockets that are emboldening workers to fight for better wages. This all strikes me as a reaction to the rise of China, um, that they, they need to pay off or buy off the people at home, including a lot of the white people to some extent. Um, in order to be able to focus on the external threats that they're perceiving. I mean, what do you think? I'm sorry. Sorry, I was like working on the stream thing. What, oh. what, what was the question again? Oh, that the United States seems to be um, drifting away from liberalism in every sense. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, including, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. That including was, in, in the economic sense where uh, you saw that there was no fight over the debt ceiling. Oh, yeah. No, like, I mean, like, you're, you're seeing it as well with the way that... Um, <laughs> I don't know. Actually, what I was thinking of is that... I was I don't know. For whatever reason, I was thinking of uh, Sargon and his... <laughs> His conception of, of a purely classical liberal society, and nobody wants that. Not even the people who call themselves liberals want that. It's just we've we've entered the phase of where everyone realizes now because things have become so financialized, because things have become so diverse. The idea of having a liberal of a purely classical liberal society is a farce. And so all yeah. that all that matters is the application of pure power, and yep. the you know the people who call themselves liberals say see that oh actually wielding power is actually pretty awesome. Let's do well, it. I, I was, and I let's was punish our someone, enemies. Yeah, I was talking to a leftist about this recently, and this person was telling me that anyone on the left that even tepidly raises their hand and says, "Well, you can't do that. What about their rights?" They just get fucking purged from the left and from the liberal movement. Um, the the Democrats just kick them out. If, if if anyone look at Glenn Greenwald, for example, right? Glenn Greenwald now the only place that'll host him is Fox News, and it's mostly because he said, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't be trying to overthrow an elected government with Russia Gate, or hey, maybe we shouldn't torture the January sixth defendants." Those people get fucking purged from the left, like the 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 the, the freaks, the millennial ghouls that are controlling much of the levers of power in America right now have zero respect for anyone's rights to disagree. That's why you see this really alarming tendency now 
where if you disagree with a tranny or you make fun of a, a man in a skirt or you fucking complain about any racial issue or if you say anything about Jews, it's no longer that they call you a Nazi. They call you a terrorist now and they sick the FBI on you. I mean, that's fucking alarming. Yeah. Okay. Uh- I'll tell you something that was very striking to me because I I keep up date on Ted Kaczynski's re-releases of his books because he tends to add new footnotes to his stuff. And this, you know, this is a guy who basically was observing things as a silent generation. Does he have a publishing house? I'm not sure I want to open a a, a FedEx package from Ted Kaczynski. (laughs) What's do you, he, do you correspond with him? No, actually, I, I deliberately avoid that because I already have enough problems when I play. I don't need, I don't need to add that one as well. But, <laughs> but he, yeah. uh, I, I read the footnotes of his of his uh, works, and one of the most striking things in his in it's volume one of of the re release of Technological Slavery, and he adds a bunch of 2016 era notes to stuff he previously wrote. And what was interesting in the footnotes is the is different things he said like oh, I was wrong about this, or the way he revised this stuff. Because when Kaczynski was doing the things he was doing, he called himself an anarchist. And then he later wrote in a footnote, like, I didn't actually understand what anar- what these anarchists believe. I'm definitely not an anarchist. Because yeah. he, really, he, he, he learned more about how shitty they are and decided, like, yeah, I'm not an anarchist. But then he was also, he, in some of his, like, I think it was the manifesto or one of his other letters, he had described the system of the of the Soviet Union as well. And he, yeah. you know, this is a guy who grew up in the Cold War, and he had the conception of it that most people in America had. And he later wrote in a footnote, like, I have, having subsequently read numerous books, even from Soviet dissidents, about how the... Uh, the Soviet Union function is like, is that while it had its problems, a worker was free to basically uh, believe what they wanted as long as they didn't come in conflict with the government, which is yeah. more than what you can say for the liberal system. Right. And which I found to be a very striking thing of, you know, considering he's been behind bars for quite an amount of time. And he's been, you know, he keeps up to date as yeah. much as he can on stuff. And he found that to be very striking that you still had a certain level of conscience even under the totalitarian system of these uh, right. Soviet communist governments, but liberalism doesn't allow for that freedom of thought. Well, you want to you go even further. I actually have something here from NATO. I'm going to post it in the chat, ladies and gentlemen. Really just disturbing stuff. So this is, um, this is a program fairly recent program at NATO and uh, it's called the cognitive warfare department and ostensibly the point of the cognitive warfare department is to quote fight foreign enemies that uh, use disinformation on populations including domestically um, you can find the, the studies that they're doing. They, they're, they're working full time on this. This is a, a, a full on NATO program. And essentially what this is, is they're trying to figure out ways to use psychological warfare and, uh, engine, me, me, uh, you know, social engineering to try and talk people into liking what they're doing, into approving of their government. Because as we as we've seen over the years, anything that is critical of Zog is just 
labeled disinformation, right? I mean, it's gotten so stupid that even like the the kind of like you know Republican types that are going to ball games and 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 chanting "fuck Joe Biden." There's a an NBC journalist or, or something that someone on 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 one of the the mainstream Zionist media platforms was claiming that this is the work of Russian disinformation that's making people say "fuck Joe Biden," chant "fuck Joe Biden." So. Keep that in mind if, if you ever want to read some of the policy papers. They're, they're open and free, uh, the documents on this website. We have the on documents. The NATO website. We have the documents. And uh, basically it's, it's, it's about dealing with the challenges of the domestic populations but also foreign populations that increasingly just outright reject the values that are emanating from Washington, Paris, London, and so on. Um, really creepy stuff, to be honest. Um, you know, this is like th- this is actually more creepy than the Soviet Union because in the Soviet Union you expect to be lied to, but increasingly in the United States people also expect to be lied to. So that's a good thing. But well, here, I, they're trying to I, well, make it. They want it to look organic. So well, when, they're, when you're in a Facebook group, they they're, they're going to have like trolls planting narratives when you're on 4chan and so on there's gonna be trolls and you already kind of see it now here's the difference i I would i would here's the difference i would say to all that because you know adam curtis has that famous documentary hyper normalization which is the you know the effect that post you know like late stage soviet citizens were feeling where this the government was saying one thing and they knew everything else was wrong and we got you and Mike have talked about this is that the 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 thing and the reason why Jews and these elites have moved away from the Soviet model was because it had a central locus a central focus yeah. that the people had to you know knowing like oh yeah. the government which is the all encompassing force and power is lying to me i know they're right. wrong therefore i am against the government you don't have that centralization under this american liberal system and what they've also added to that is that you know as awful as the soviets were and i i'm not an apologist for that system but they the the way that you and you would sometimes see distance described as this, but the like the level of gaslighting that the united states system engages on its own citizens the level of psyops it performs on its own citizens like that's it, why some people look at like the at the soviet brutality with some fun it's like well at least i know who's punishing me and why well, whereas here it's all about like making you feel like you might actually be insane they want their citizens well, to be insane i'll say this about liberalism and this is an, the oldest anti-liberal critique in the book is that liberalism is very effective in destroying civic institutions and you know the various institution institutions that an individual relies on to function in society and Wang Huning talks about this too which is the family right he talks about the destruction of the family in America how liberalism has effectively abolished the family uh and this is something that really the soviets tried to do at the beginning uh, but weren't really successful for a variety of historical and social reasons and so on. But here's 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 the great irony of liberalism is that if someone destroys your church or or co-ops your church, uh, if someone destroys your family, 
if someone destroys your your social, like even like pub culture is destroyed. Fucking uh, uh, Roger Scruton has written about this, how the pub used to be a place where men would gather and chat, men in the community would chat. Now it's uh, pubs are basically nightclubs with music blaring where you can't talk to anyone for, in many instances. Uh, and also, you know, ethnic identity is 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 attacked heavily by liberalism, by Jewish liberalism. And so here's the great irony is that when you actually get rid of all these natural human checks and balances on oppression, you end up more reliant on the government as, as an individual, as an individual. This is the great irony of libertarianism. As an individual, you become more reliant on the government to uphold your rights because you don't have a clan or a neighborhood or a, 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 any kind of collective body that can stand up for you in a, sol- in a manner of solidarity. And liberalism has effectively destroyed all of this. So now we're at the point in America specifically where all of our safety nets, the organic safety nets have been destroyed. So here we are more dependent than ever on the benevolence of the government to uphold our free speech rights. And they're just like Rorschach whispering, no. Okay. That, this that's, was, <laughs> and this was something that deeply was. disturbed Christopher Lash in his book, The The Culture of Narcissism. He you know, he he has a incorrect analysis on some levels because he's a neo-Freudian and like we don't need to reiterate why Freudianism is bunk. But I I think it was in chapter three, he ends it with this discussion of the Marquis de Sade and how he is the culmination of what the French Revolution believed in terms of its abolishment of all things. That's why the French Revolution is, you know, it's it's not that it, it's not a deeply disturbing event because it instituted a republic. Republics have existed in history before. No, it, it's because it was predicated on the idea of everything must be abolished. And what he noted with the way that Desaad was the fulfillment of all that with his disgusting writings is that when all these ties and institutions and all in the family, you know, which is supposed to be this haven in a heartless world, when all these things are abolished, then the then all that's left is a body, and it's a body that belongs to everybody to be used and abused. And so it, it, when yes. that happens, you need to find an anchor. And if the, you know, like if, if all the other anchors have been destroyed, you're going to go for whatever's left, which is going to be the government. Yeah, the government or even plutocracy. I mean, look at the, the, the conservative response to tech censorship is to beg tech companies to stop doing it or to point out the hypocrisy of what they're doing. Well, what if they don't care? Like, <laughs> like if it's, it's just fucking ridiculous, you know. It's like th- this is this is the world they created. This is the world Ronald Reagan created. Yeah. Okay. He took the fucking power out of the government's hands, where it was more balanced or expected to be more balanced, and he put it in the hands of private NGOs. Those people control our fucking society now, and they fucking hate us, and they and they want to hurt people. They want to hurt all people that disagree with them, which is actually the majority of the population. So what the hell do we do now, right? Now, our, our response is to create things like NJP and create a network that, that – and a kind of almost a, a – not a parallel society. We're, we're actually very much against 
creating parallel societies like the Amish, but uh, a network where if you're in trouble, you know, we got a lot of money to our to our guy who was in trouble, his family's in trouble. We got 15K thanks to the community, close to 15K. Uh, thanks to community, and it helped them quite a it, bit. It, it was, was fi- it was 15k, but a lot of that got eaten up in in fees and transactions. Ah, like so, basically, for people who want to know the final tally, it was basically 12 to 13k, and and we've gotten right. about, I think we've gotten about a third of it over to them now. I, the, uh, entropy yes. is the big payout we're just waiting yes. on right now. Borzoi is people are working very hard. Borzoi, you have to give. I got I got a lot of kudos for that, but honestly, without Borzoi. I wouldn't have been able to do it. So give him some credit too. Give him lots of credit. If you got, and if um, people want to make like, just just keep in mind like if you want to make an, I'll still take money like crypto donations yeah. to help him out. But like you gotta you gotta make remember like if you say like hey I want to give you like twenty five bucks through crypto like most that's gonna be eaten up, be eaten up in transactions. So I appreciate yeah. I appreciate everybody who reached out and helped out. It, oh, it, was, yeah. it was amazing, fantastic. But at this point, and he, he's gotten a lot. We've been slugging the money over to him. I think, he's, yeah, we we got him. We got, over, him but, we got him enough to to be able to move his family closer to where his son is getting treated. I mean that that's already a huge help. You know, digging up that much money in an emergency like that when you already have tons of other costs associated with it is is a hard thing to do. And so this was sort of almost not really an experiment. But more so like the the direction I want to go in with what we're doing here, which is that we in exchange for you uh, becoming a pro-white activist, you don't just get the the moral, uh, you know, the the moral ennobling effect of fighting for your people and your civilization. but You also get a network that is almost like a family. Okay. What what I find very striking is kind of, and I don't mean like to call attention to this, and I'm not asking for people to give stuff to us, but it, like it, there is a very different uh, situation with the donations this week and last week, and I think that's fantastic because it means that when we need to ask people like, hey, this is important, somebody is really in need, people. Yeah come out in droves in an emergency on short notice like to me like that's the most telling thing that it happened on short notice and people came out in full force i don't mind that people like i don't mind that people like you know like you gotta it's you know your money you gotta do what's smart and what's right with that but if we say like hey we got a guy who's got a kid in trouble who needs help right we need help. We need all hands on deck, and people came out in droves for it that tells me there is something there and that's very important to me that's so important because if you have a if you have a network, a safety net, a community, a you know th- this is what people and no one in America has this now. No one in America has this, and if we can fill that vacuum, not only do you do a great deed, but you also build the political revolution. I mean, this is why, um, this is why I believe it or not, a lot of our enemies were. I saw a little bit of static. They were upset that we were able to do that. They were freaked. They out. There were a lot of people freaked out yeah. by it. They were freaked the fuck out. They they were mad. They were fucking mad. And so even if if hey, even if you're an asshole and you don't care about uh you know a, a kid with cancer, um 
do it because you want to own the own them. <laughs> you know, let's say you're a Scrooge and you're just a contrarian. Well, then do it because you want to fucking fight back against those people, too. So there's something for everyone in, 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 in engaging in this kind of network. And, you know, th- this is why it's important to be to try and be as selfless as possible in this, because, you know, you have to give to get. And that's an eternal law. It's it's how, you know, I, I actually kind of learned this from Mr. Beast. OK, Mr. Beast. I'm not talking about the charity fundraiser, but I'm just talking about in general that, you know, M- Mr. Beast's business model is to get things for people and they give things back. And that's like the ultimate and kind of karmic knowledge that um, needs to be, uh, you know, kind, it, it needs to be more intuitive on the right too many right wingers don't understand how politics works they don't understand it okay the left understands but our side doesn't understand so much you know so i think that we you know we do have limited resources and so on i understand that but engaging in goodwill good deeds building Good, a good reputation for for who we are. You know, we have to fight a whole system that criminalizes us. They they stop calling us names now. They call us terrorists. So it's important to show the public that the that the Jews are lying about that because they are, and it's not that hard to do it. Because let's compare them to us, and you see a big difference in terms of uh, just character. Okay. So anyway, let's go to the questions, boys. Yep. Tam donates twenty dollars. Thank you, Tam. Uh, Raza, actually, it's Pakistani. I guess he had a different name here. Uh, Pakistani Anarchy donated three. Pakistani Anarchy here. Striker, that CIA plane that got shot down was in Afghanistan, not Syria. It contained the head of the Iran desk in IRGC's electronic warfare unit. Got the plane down. Interesting. Interesting. So it, it contained the Dark Prince, as they call him. Um, I, I, I'm shocked if, if he's actually dead. I mean, that that was what was reported at the time, but I didn't actually see any confirmation, but you won't get any. Um, but we, we did learn recently from the New York Times that like hundreds of CIA agents and informants are just being captured and killed all over the world. And what's interesting about that is they were saying that it's just because they're lazy or they're not doing enough um, good trade craft or whatever. But, you know, the, the United States is actually the most effective at recruiting CIA informants. And it's mostly because of the amount of money they, they pay people. But we're going into a realm now in human development where people are starting to, you know, because the 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 agents that they're losing are mostly in places like Iran, Russia, China. Uh, Pakistan. And so what we're seeing is that what could be potentially happening is that the non um, the, the, the non-financial incentives like patriotism, values that have been lost in America and frankly destroyed, not lost, that those values still matter to people. People still want to feel like they're doing something noble, like they're fighting for something bigger than them. Not everyone is motivated solely by money. And I think that's part of the reason. And, and then, of course, there's another reason, which is that there might be double agents in high ranking positions at the CIA giving over human intelligence files to the 
these adversarial countries. I mean, that's totally within the realm of possibility. Because think about it this way. If you're the CIA, you might see it as a strength. And it, to some extent, it is a strength that you can recruit from the Chinese-American population, from the Russian-American population, from, from the uh, Pakistani and um, Iranian-American population. You might be very confident that, oh, this is going to give us a huge advantage with these other countries. But what if those people, like, are still loyal to their own country or their own race on some level? Like, that's when you get a situation at Langley where they're going to start – I don't know. If, if, if they get a whiff that – which is probably what's going on, that it's probably a, a, a mole, a super mole – is probably giving way. They're, they're, they're making lots of excuses trying to trying to uh, cover all the angles before they go to that one. Um, but if there is a mole or many moles that are giving away all of the CIA agents and blowing their cover to these other governments, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that they, they have a really tough road ahead of them, which is to go on a witch hunt. And when you do that, you increase paranoia within the ranks. And on top of that, you don't always get the actual mole. You get a lot of innocent people caught in the trap, in the dragnet, but you oftentimes will miss the mole, which is actually something that happened in the CIA during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. There was a, there was a guy that was convinced that half the CIA was composed of KGB oh, agents. J- James Jesus Angleton. Yes, Angleton. And uh, he almost destroyed the CIA during his witch hunt. The vast majority of the people he accused yeah. were not KGB. He, he was Meanwhile, also, the real KGB agents <laughs> retired with their pension and, and confessed whether, when they died. <laughs> whether you want to believe that this is uh, connected or just incidental, I mean, James Jesus Angleton is also the reason for the integration between CIA and Mossad. There was a deep suspicion of Israeli intelligence for the early, the early stage. Of the CIA because you still had this remnant yeah. of old of, of an older type of America before they had gone gone completely over to basically like, well we're just going to do whatever uh, Mossad says. Angleton was the one yes. who created the bridge between the two organizations, right? And they're relying on the Mossad and the Israelis uh, keeping all their secrets. But what if like the Israelis need something from China or Russia, like? You know, I was talking to Mike about this. This is speculation. But what if, like, for example, the Wall Street Jews at Blackstone and at Goldman Sachs, they they want to make they want to break into the Chinese market. Chinese market is highly regulated and, and blocks Wall Street. And so they say, well, what if I give you something? How about I give you the entire network of CIA operatives covertly gay opping your country? in exchange for a contract at, uh, you know, uh, your real estate company or something. Well, the Chinese will say yes. And I suspect that is one possibility for how the Chinese were able to destroy the entire CIA network in the early 2010s in China. They got everyone. It's like it was one of the biggest intelligence failures in human history was the the complete uncovering of every CIA agent operating in China. Yeah, remember when when, uh, the CIA did those uh, those series, I think you and Mike talked about it, or they talked about it on Tedious. It was the, uh, they did the videos of basically you had these millennial liberal arts types talking about why like doing CIA work was is meaningful for them. And you have to wonder, I mean, like you, you think about stuff like the Cambridge Five and the way that 
the oh, yeah. that that the Soviets turned all of these these Western spies, and what do, I, I mean, like, it just speaks more poorly of America than anything. But what when you have these narcissistic monsters, what what can China and Russia do to basically? compromise them it just i i, I put right. this out there as a thought experiment like, what do they have to do to neutralize or turn this type of this crop this new crop of american intelligence that's coming up right. how do you deal with these these narcissistic narcissistic buffoons oh yeah frankly? the neurodivergent wise latinxes and yeah, yeah that kind I mean, of yeah that type maybe they can I mean, it could be also just up. be incompetence on that on their yeah. part i mean it could be a combination of a million things that is causing the CIA to lose its edge because all they have really now is money. They can they can pay people to give them intelligence, but they have a lot of other things going against them. You know, from the multiculturalism to the the narcissism of the agents to the the frankly the, the mediocrity of the newest generation of of young people graduating from universities. Um, all these things play a role in this. And, uh, and, and yeah, someone in the chat was saying that they think that Mossad may, might be giving Iran and China CIA agents identities in exchange for like some, you know, so, something, right? Some kind of bargaining chip. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it, it, if you if you look at if you look at the the <clears throat> if you look at Israel's relationship to America, I always compare it to Harvey Keitel, right, in Taxi Driver. Um, you know, he's he's just it's just like uh, the, America is the little girl that he pimps. Right. So yeah. America is just a, a cheap bargaining chip for, for international jury. And if they see that they've sucked us dry and they run, they rang out every last drop in America, they will at least try to jump ship. It's up to Xi Jinping and the Russians to stop to, or to at least, you know, have their own interests at the table when they try to do that. But it remains to be seen. I don't see them yet doing that. You still have people like George Soros that are telling Jews to stop investing in China, to that they're being played, and they very well may be. You know, we saw that the Japanese, uh, because Asians simply have more self-discipline and have a homogenous population, they they're more able to deal with Jews on an equal basis than you know people of European descent after the Second World War. So. Um, this is actually something that's going to be interesting to watch as well. To see is, can international jury not just see the writing on the wall with America, but even like accelerate its collapse to go full on pro China, pro Russia? That is completely in the realm of possibilities. Yeah, because um, like the with the collapse talk, I, I, people don't often understand what I mean. And as though like I, that, I believe it's just like this. It's just this natural phenomenon that happens, and that nothing oh, can no. be done about it. And I was like, no, you can, you can, in, like, you can have a controlled demolition, which is still a collapse. Yes. So you can have a, de right. a controlled demolition of an empire. That's right. essentially what the the collapse of the Ottoman Empire was. Is that they, oh, yeah. it was a a control? Like all these other powers have realized like, that. The Ottoman Empire was the sick old man of Europe, so they engaged in the controlled demolition of it. Well, there's nothing to stop them from doing the same thing in the United States, basically. It's well, yeah. Like, I mean, collapses don't have to be this 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 catastrophe. Uh, this catastrophe where like there's a tsunami, there's like a, a collapse yeah. and a big tsunami of chaos. Like we can see tons and tons of examples throughout history of you know uh, 
what even even like you could argue even Western Rome, right? Like the what Western Rome when it was actually dissolved by Justinian. Was that really that big of a deal? Not really. Well, they it, were it they were really... already they had already kind of written it off for a while, anyways. I mean the the whole crisis of the third century that was largely yeah. a Western Roman Empire phenomenon, and basically got to the point. Like, it was a big reason why they basically engaged in the whole um, tetrarchy of having the the four yes. co emperors. Was basically like, the West has become a complete unmanageable mess. Like let's say, like the East is fine. Let's just kind of like leave that off to its own thing. Right. Right, you had a bunch of breakaway states that were controlled by the the G- German tribes of barbarians, Goths, and so on. And just it's like, you know what? I'm fucking tired. I quit. That's, <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little facetious there, but it wasn't this big dramatic thing. It just like that that part of Europe just like didn't do anything for a while. Yeah. Um. And. Uh, the Soviet Union was sort of similar, but, you know, because of different aspects in modern technology and so on, it seems to be kind of resurrected to some degree, Russian interests. But the Soviet Union collapsed and, quote, collapsed, and there wasn't like a, a civil war or something, you know. In, in Syria, there was a civil war and the government didn't collapse, right? Yeah. So that was a product of synthetic outside intervention. Yep. Um, so, you know, again, America's collapse doesn't have to be this dramatic thing where there's a shooting war and this and that. Like, it could just be like everyone just quietly breaks off into their own states. That's that's totally actually literally the realm possible. In one of uh, John, I forget which one, but in one of John Michael Greer's fictional novels about the collapse of the United States, that's literally what happens is that there is a relatively peaceful breaking away yep. of the United States. That That is a a scenario that could happen it could also be an absolute pmc you know slicing up nightmare of the united states it could be a rump yep. state situation it could be a lot of different things it's just what the united yeah, states it doesn't have is, to be like yeah. the turner diaries yeah like, what the united states uh, was is no longer going to be the case what it's going to be may not be sustainable that's essentially what we're the situation we're going into it's going to be a lot of very strange uncharted territory but what that fundamentally means for the average person for the average working person is life is going to get a lot harder and a lot more oh, difficult yeah. and that's who we're speaking to that's like that that's that's why like it's kind of frustrating to talk about like the political realities of things because people who have means and money can manage horrible situations but yes. for the average person, life is going to be a lot more unbearable and a lot more difficult, and that's who we want to yeah. reach out to and explain to them, like, hey, there's a reason for why this is happening. Yeah, and it's not necessarily going to be like, you know, not to say that those people don't aren't also – they could play a big role, right? But it's not necessarily going to be that the, the like this people that run off to live in the woods and stuff, those will be the only survivors or something – It'll be far more complex than that if it yeah. happens. And when it comes to a shooting war, let's be honest, like Republicans that are going like Marjorie Taylor Greene going out, we need a national divorce. We need a civil war, all that. Um, well, well, first of all, like te- the state of Texas, which is the second most populous state, it could be its own country. If it was in Europe, it would be one of the larger countries. Um, but it would be a third world country because it's got a third world population. Okay, Texas. Like, I don't want to fucking live in Texas, and even as even now, but in a scenario like that, even less. Texas, as an independent country, would basically just look a lot like a Central or South American country. 
Yeah, it'll just be Mexico. Let's be yeah. fair. It'll just be Mexico. Okay, and you know, probably shittier than Mexico because for a variety of reasons. But it would just be Cal- California. So Texas would be Mexico. California would be like Honduras. <laughs> like, okay, you think you think uh, rolling blackouts that are happening now with the entire wealth of the empire bailing you out. Those things are already happening in places like Texas. People freeze to death in the winter because they, the power goes out. Um, you know, that shit is just going to get far, far worse. So it's not really, you know, and second of all too, like conservatives that talk like that, you know, you don't have any power. You don't have any institution. So which side is going to be commanding the U S military, right? So, a shooting war is not really, in my opinion, in the realm of possibilities. But, you know, who knows? Anything could happen, right? Let's go to the next one. Okay. Uh, I think his, he goes by, like, Tizimic77 now, but I'm pretty sure it's Tom. Uh, he donates $14. Hail Borzoi. Hail Striker. Oh, hail to you. And uh, we're going over the Odyssey tips now. All right. Uh, D's kosher nuts donates. Like, hmm. I'm not even gonna try to figure out what these amounts are. Like these are little library coins. Yeah. The heart uh, based. Martin Heidegger donates hope and says hope this helps. Uh, oh, Xi Jinping you. is donates five dollars and he's testing out the Odyssey donation. So clearly he's happy with the uh, with our oh. discussion of his uh, of his thought leader there, Wang Huning. Cri- crypto. Crypto replacing U.S. dollar as world reserve currency. Everybody wang hooning tonight. Yep, indeed. Uh, Forest Elephant donates. Is the, is the reason why we don't hear anything about Tibet anymore is because Dalai Lama said during the migrant crisis that Europe is for the Europeans and migrants need to go back to their home countries. Instead, it's all this weaker crap. Yeah, I mean, my opinion yeah, is that he, he's like... Look, the the Tibet situation is complicated, but to be honest, like he is, like he's got CIA connections, and he's just part. Uh, and yeah, I I support the things he said in support of our people, but he's yeah. part of an older operation that is being phased out. Well, the 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 problem with the Tibetans is one, they're. They're Buddhists, so their their philosophy is like completely useless to the CIA. <laughs> they're they're peaceful, right? So that that's for a different world, right? A world where that kind of like well, and, all, uh, and also how you Tibet, look and the, the media matter, right? The 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 Theravadan branch of of Buddhism, which is what was prevalent in Tibet, is very because the, there's different types of Buddhism in the type of bu- right. Buddhism that the Tibetans practice. There's a reason why their society was very feudal, even into the right. 20th century. It just it lended itself to that. It's like it's like the CIA using the if there was a version of the Amish inside of China and yeah. the CIA is supporting the Amish. Like there's only so much you can do with that. Yeah. That why why would you do that when you can literally employ ISIS, which is what they're doing? So I don't know if people know this. I wrote about it on the hyphen earlier today. There was a suicide bombing last week really destabilizing by ISIS-K, and it was done by, this is in Afghanistan, it was done by a Uyghur, a Chinese Uyghur, did the suicide bombing. And ISIS-K has declared jihad against the Taliban because they are 
diplomatically engaging China and Iran. So what a coincidence that ISIS-K <laughs> has the same enemies as Israel. They, they, Zog really went, really went just like, like just said, fuck it, we're not even going to try anymore with how Uyghur-oriented yeah. they made ISIS-K. It's like, it's like, I don't give a shit. I'm not even going like, like, to... Not almost, even try. You have to almost respect the, the amount of detail that these boomers, these CIA boomers used to do into their crafts. Like, we got, well, yeah. we kind of make, we got to create some verisimilitude with this we need to make sure it seems real like we really need to sell this and like you have these millennial cia agents like no we're just we're just gonna like don't even care no when they're working on the gay ops they're like also surfing like instagram and twitter so like they're just mail they're just doing it halfway and with all the covid stuff where they're working from home they're probably like like uh, you know drinking wine and smoking weed while they're work. These these millennial CIA agents are working on this gay op. So here here's here's the rundown on the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs have thousands of jihadists in operating in Central Asia, increasingly in Afghanistan. They're members of ISIS K. Um, uh, essentially, the guy that that was talking about this recently in 2018 was a guy named Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He was in part of the Bush administration. He said that people in Washington, their solution to China outcompeting, like winning fair and square is to Nancy Kerrigan them. Okay. Like, (laughs) so basically he was saying like the only way we can compete with China technologically uh, economically, culturally, whatever, is to just create a terrorist group from the Uyghurs and just like literally have them suicide bomb Belt and Road Initiative stuff ranging from Pakistan to Afghanistan. So that, th- 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 there's actually – they're not even strongly denying it. Like the Taliban goes out there and says America made ISIS-K and the people in the Pentagon kind of just like, oh, yeah, the squirrels, squirrels, yeah, the squirrels. Yeah, blah, blah. Oh, no, that's not us. Yeah, this, we're not the squirrels. So that's kind of what they're doing, and uh, they're not hiding it. Um, For example, the suicide bombing that killed um, um, the 13 Marines when America was withdrawing was interned at the Bagram Air Base. Now, that could just be a coincidence, but we know, and we discussed this in depth on Strike and Mike, that the original ISIS was created at Camp Bukha in um, Iraq. So the U.S. was guarding 100,000 jihadists and Ba'athist POWs, and they created ISIS there. And the excuse that Washington gave was that, well, we didn't speak Arabic. We didn't know that they were creating (laughs) ISIS. And then we let them go. So it's pretty obvious ISIS-K is a CIA operation. The Turkish government is saying so. The Iranian government is saying – because the Turkish government is a member of NATO. They have no reason to lie about this. They're saying it's the CIA. Iran has already provided evidence that it's the CIA. They have like – okay, people in the Northern Alliance, which was the American puppet group in Afghanistan that was helping fight the Taliban, they have people saying – one of the governors of these provinces was saying the CIA was flying uh, jihadists from Syria and Iraq to – this province, it starts with, I forgot, Kodasran or something. That's where ISIS-K is is, found, is, um, is based out of. And uh, so, yeah, this is just totally fake. And it's created essentially oh, to... Kodasran. Kodasran, yes. And, and, and they said, like, b- black helicopters 
with that were probably black air helicopters and CIA planes were flying in ISIS terrorists from other countries to that region. So that that's it. Um, it's pretty much open an open secret. And the goal is to essentially um, drag China into Afghanistan, you know, like so. So this is this is a kind of nasty shit our government does. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's, I'm going to be accused of it anyway, so I'll just, you know, I I shouldn't even worry about this. But the reason why they're freaked out by by this kind of multipolar idea that, you know, thinkers like Wang Huning is trying to propose is because you have a country like China that's dealing with, they're dealing with wanting to get reclaimed Taiwan. They're dealing with the situation in Hong Kong. They're dealing with what's called East Turkmenistan. They're dealing with Xinjiang. They're dealing with all this stuff, and they're still managing to portray themselves as a credible and viable alternative to the liberal order that the United States is ostensibly supposed to represent. And that freaks them out, that despite all these things they throw at them, it's it's not doing anything. And I fear that the stupid partisanship going on right now on things like COVID and, you know, oh, look, we have to take the opposite position of Biden. So Donald Trump supported the infrastructure bill. Donald Trump support brokered the deal to get out of Afghanistan. And you have the conservative establishment taking the opposite position, which is the real position, they, the position they actually believe in, which is that we should stay in Afghanistan forever and that we should actually be budget hawks or whatever. But anyway, they're trying to use that partisanship, that lizard brain people, to try and manipulate them back into the neocon Zionist consensus that Trump broke. And I fear that some of the kind of folk libertarianism that was whipped up during COVID, that this could be used as a kind of um, straw man or red herring to to, to turn China into a, a red herring and say, Look at the Chinese. They want to they, they, the, the COVID lockdowns and the vaccine. That's their policy. Don't you love freedom more? And then you can, at that point, whip people up into something retarded like fighting China over Taiwan. OK, well, that's what I fear. I don't think it's going to be as effective as it was during the Iraq war, but it's not out of the realm of possibilities either that they could try that. You know? I'm not trying to start a fight, but I mean, I think what they essentially want in terms of those because. Om- They've realized that online disc, like, the people who watch online, who watch cable news, like that's just that nothing's oh, going to fundamentally change. Yeah, TV race, nothing's going to fundamentally change with them. But there is this component of internet race that they have to deal with. Yeah. And what they would, what they would like is somebody who has the views of sticks, hex, and hammer without any of the identity. He doesn't have any views without. Well, yeah, I mean, what what I mean is like the views with like with reach and none of the baggage. That's what they want, because he's got he's got the views that they want, because he's the one who always like harps upon the idea of Beijing, Biden, and that, because what they want to get to is they want to get to the people who because like all of our little like all these little ponds, all these little like circles we're in are not large in terms of the grand scheme of a large population, but it has 
cultural influence. I mean, like we know disproportionate we, on political people. Yeah, though. we know we have influence. That we like we like. There's stuff that you and I both personally know that we can't talk about that we've had influence. Yes. Like it, the, yes. the, it, 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 there's a punch above your weight aspect oh, yeah. to this, and they want somebody who's got that weight. But has basically sticks his views, and that's what they're trying. That's to, impossible. I yeah, mean, that's kind of yeah. what you know Peter Thiel's kind of trying to do. Like you see a lot of people that are taking money from Thiel and stuff, and that's whatever. It's none of my business. But like the 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 anti woke left has been turned into this like like re- really retarded. Like t- Ted Cruz is the real socialist now. Like that kind. Of, <laughs> I don't know if you copy that. Totally uninteresting and frankly irrelevant. Even I have if they a dog. Have, I, I have a dog and baby. My my level of of uh, of toleration for online retardation has plummeted yeah. in the last six months. I don't have time yeah, for that anymore. And, yeah, and and even like you know a lot of the stuff that they're just they're just becoming irrelevant culturally because they're not adding anything. They're not starting any debates. They're just kind of riding the coattails for money of of stupidity. And the, the problem is, though, is that when you lower the, the, the level of discourse to the level that it's at right now, you can manipulate people into all kinds of stupid shit. You can manipulate people into an Iraq war. OK, that that's when the Iraq war happened. This country was also at the very same level of political discourse rat right now. It was just as retarded. OK, um, so that's a warning from history, recent history about this stuff. The thing is, can America do another Iraq war? The answer is no, no, definitely no. Not. So I don't know what they're trying to do. They're trying to, they're, they're going back to some of the old playbooks, but those playbooks are my friends. Very, very, I, very, I, I, they desperately want basically a, a 2000 era. They they want like Republican art uh, Republican Party era two thousand two thousands with the aughts with the um basically kind of like this uh, Christian Zionism but like a new flavor of it which is why they're trying to do yes. some kind of weird Catholic integralism oh God. with it and yeah. it's just the the fact is is that Apple. yeah I mean like just from a mechanical standpoint. <laughs> The the amount of people who were online back then were much different and much fewer, and yeah. th- just things have fundamentally changed, and the conditions of people have changed. You can't do that anymore. Well, just, hey, you hmm. can't actually do that anymore. Whatever you might think of this, whatever people think of this, whether it's good or bad, the public is is drifting even further away from religion, right wing and left wing. Yeah, so. If you're going to try and astroturf Catholic integralism like Sorab Amari and uh, who, who's a Zionist, right? He's a fucking Iranian Zionist who converted to Catholicism. I can't think of a more repulsive, a more repulsive human being that you cannot trust someone like that. You're, you're, you're literally like the, the, the Jews are literally they want to exterminate your race. They, they celebrate every year. Jews celebrate a day where they exterminate Sorab Amari's race, specifically his race. Uh, and he's a Zionist shill working at the New York Post, but people like that, like they're just they're just a joke. Like that, that's not going to go anywhere. They 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 enjoyed a brief uh, kind of moment in the spotlight, and it quickly just dissipated into nothing. Um, and so you know, and and this is because those th- this is actually something that I don't know if you if you read uh, George Hawley's book on the alt right. 
I've been reading it again. I've never recently, read the book, but I it's really I, good. We did a disaggregation of his data basically years ago. Well, yes, but yes, indeed. And uh, you know, I did. I, I I've been reading it again. <laughs> It's three years old, so keep that in mind. A lot of it's, some of it's outdated. But what he was saying is that <clears throat> he was warning liberals to stop undermining conservatives because he said, you know, a lot of liberals, and he's basically talking about those Gentile white liberals that read like Huffington Post and stuff that get really into like, the Republicans are trying to create a Christian theocracy in America. We have to stop them. And he was saying, like, listen, the alt-right is not particular. he says this, they're not particularly interested in Islam. He says that um, normal conservatives are far more anti-Islam than the alt-right, and the reason is that the alt-right does not care about liberal values. Mm -hmm. uh, he says the alt-right laughs at the abortion issue. This is back in 2016-17. The alt-right does not have any of the shibboleths that mainstream conservatives do. And while a lot of liberals at first glance may think this is good, he says the ideas that they do have are far, far more radical and frankly more threatening to liberal plutocracy as it lives, as it exists, than conservatism is. So he's basically making the case for like, hey, liberals, let's carve out a space for the for religious right people, which is actually something they're starting to do. We saw the other day. Uh, a federal judge appointed by by Bill Clinton actually ruled that the vaccine mandate does not apply to people with religious exemptions in New York. Um, so uh, and, and you see also free speech cases like, you know, increasingly federal judges just refuse to acknowledge the First Amendment for white nationalists, for even many non-white nationalists, right wingers. But when it comes to religious things like, you know, uh, if you're a, a, a Catholic or an evangelical <clears throat> that wants to go in the middle of a California campus and preach about the, the, the horrors of, of homosexuality and uh, abortion and stuff, that as long as it's religious, you'll see that courts are very responsive. And, and, and I think that the institutions are instructed to do this as a way to, to get people to be like, OK, you're not going to win on racial stuff. So let's – lean in on purely religious angle because the courts are more responsive to that. So it's basically an incentive for that, right? And that's not to say I'm against religion as a rule or that I don't like religious people or even like them or whatever. I don't have an opinion really. I think everyone's religion is is their own their own business and and I, I actually like people that are sincerely religious. I do like that. But um there's also this fact, okay, that they would rather you take up Catholicism than racialism. And, and again, it doesn't have to be a false dichotomy. I was writing about this today. E. Michael Jones was doing this thing where he was talking about how, you know, there was like this Nazi um, in the 60s who was part Jewish, uh, oh, not Frank Collin. No, no, no. It's, it's the other the Dan, Dan Burroughs. Yeah, Dan Burroughs. And so yep. because of that, that means Nazism is Jewish. Uh, and, and that that's really such well, a well, – Which is funny because even, the, even the AMP was suspicious of him. Like they they, they found yeah. him to be a really like – they found him to be a really fucking weird spurg. And they kicked him out. When he committed suicide, he was not a member of the AMP. Like they found him to be very strange and yeah. weird and off-putting and they kicked him out of the organization. 
Right, but let's 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 compare how many Jews are are converted to the Catholic Church versus how many Jews are in historical Nazi groups going back to the NSDAP. I mean, it's just like it's just it's just a bad faith argument. But and in Joe, and that's really sad because Jones actually, when it's not racial or or political, what he sees as political rivals, he's very good. He's very interesting, at least maybe not always on the ball, but he's very interesting. He was a, you can always count on him to have something interesting to say about something. But when it comes to this stuff, like he just becomes a total, you know, to, totally distant. He becomes a he becomes a frog Twitter troll. He turns into an NRX frog Twitter guy and like just and, posts your picture and then says, this is the person saying this. That's unfortunate. You know? I, I like I like I like uh, E. Michael Jones. He, I actually ran into I him. Like him yeah. I, I ran into him. I, I, you know, I'm just going to tell the story. My my, yeah. my my wife and I were once we were going to go to our, our RCI, RCI class and I almost bumped into uh, a woman as we're walking out walking into the church because i was kind of rubbernecking and she she goes babe what are, what are you looking at it's like i i think that's e michael jones over there she <laughs> she stops and and looks like oh my god that's e michael jones like he happened oh. he happened to be meeting some people outside of our outside of our church oh. and so i ended up going up to him walk and then you know just shaking his hand just saying thank you to him but it just it was one yeah. of the most bizarre moments of my I, life. I, very nice man. Very, very nice I, man. Yeah. I, I get I, I really like a lot of the stuff that he writes. Um, and I'm not gonna be reflexively against him because he disagrees with me on anything. I, I'm not like that. But I, I just I just kind of taken taken aback by this whole thing that, oh, if if you're a a a, a, if you believe race is real and believe it's a political issue, then you're Jewish. Like that's that's just a bad argument. Yeah. The people that the only people that have ever successfully fought the Jews and won and restored logos. That's what the Nazis did. They restored logos in Germany when they took down the Jewish power structure um, in a revolutionary manner. Uh, that those people are the Jews. I mean, it's just a silly argument, and and it and it's and it creates unnecessary tension because there are people on both sides. Listen, there are hardcore Nietzscheans on the right that are, that blame everything on Christianity, which is wrong as well. But then there's the other side. And this is, again, I, I said this on telegram. This is more of an American conservative thing um, that want to be like, Hey Jews, I'm afraid of you calling me a Nazi. So I'm going to make things up about the Nazis. And, and that, that, that's not, Catholic or Christian or theological. That's just cowardly. You know, that's all I'll say about that. But anyway, it's not, it's not personal or anything, but I'm just saying like, it's not a good, uh, it's not a good way to be, you know, but anyway, let's uh, move on yeah. to the next question. Sorry to the chat. I, and this is rough, <laughs> but we're coming at the end here. So sorry about that. And hopefully, hopefully Frank's going to be able to run it this next week. Yeah. yeah. From what people told me though, the, uh, Odyssey hardware has been all bad. Uh, is just our software has been bad all day today, so it's not just unique oh, to us. Okay. So, anyways, sorry about all that. Uh, Borzet donates fifty dollars. Death to the great oh. Satan. Hail victory. Hail striker. Hail my uh, hubby. <laughs> Thank you, Borzet. Thank you. Um, back to the uh, Odyssey. Odyssey stuff over here. Uh, I already did that one. 
Um, Iris Rosenberg donated a bunch. It was mostly stuff about the uh, bitrate issues. Sorry about that. Uh, for oh, self and so donated as well. Any books Borzoi would recommend regarding the Ottoman Empire? I finished Noel Barber's Sultans. I'm going to start Useful Enemies. The Great Courses lecture on Ottoman Empire. Any good? Yeah, the the Great Courses lecture gives you a basically a broad overview of the entire history of the Ottoman Empire. That's that's pretty good. If you want like a more comprehensive, like intellectual. Uh, deep dive into it history of the ottoman empire by uh what's this guy's name uh stanford shaw is good um osmond's and i wouldn't recommend osmond's dream um here's the thing like a lot of ottoman empire history is written by jews like osmond's dream is written by caroline finkel god shadows written by alan McHale. Um, isn't useful enemies uh noel uh was it noel malcolm um Yes, yeah, so isn't he a Jew? Like, I, think I don't he think is. he's. A, actually, don't think he's Jewish. Oh. I think no, no. Like, actually, because of, of how interesting, because of how good. G- that give me a book- second. Actually, I, I, I gotta take a piss. One second. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'll just continue. Um, the fall of the Ottomans. If you want, like, kind of like a wartime history by Eugene Rogan is okay. I, I'm not. Wasn't that huge of a fan of it? Uh, Midnight at the Pear Palace is. I'm pretty sure Charles King is a Jew, although I have no proof of that. But just the way he writes it, I think it is. But like, there's some interesting stuff in there. But honestly, of all the Ottoman Empire books I've read, the two best ones are probably Useful Enemies by Noel Malcolm and Lords of the Horizon by Jason Goodwin. Those are probably the the best histories I've read. Um, History of the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. If you want like a, like a an academic dense and it, the book is not easy to get. It's one of those older, rarer books. But um, Stanford Shaw probably has the most comprehensive history of the of the Ottoman Empire, and he gets really deep and technical into that stuff so if you're looking for like an easy broad history that that ain't gonna be shaw but if you want like an actual history uh stanford shaw is gonna be is gonna be the one you want to go with on all that oh sorry ladies and gentlemen too much uh, coffee here but yes uh no i mean um i I think that uh again there there are a lot of things about the ottoman empire i have my my prejudices about it for a variety of reasons but um, I find that you, you mentioned uh, useful enemies. I remember reading that. Fuck, when, how old probably was I? I was be- in college. I, I've read yeah. so many Ottoman Empire books. That's probably the best one the of best them I've one. read, yes. which is why I think. And because no, very Malcolm, fair. It's yeah, fair. Beca- and because it doesn't so go so out of its way to like simp for the Ottoman Empire. That's why I think it might not be that Noah Malcolm's probably not Jewish because Car- like what you'll find with Alan Mikhail and Carolyn Finkel and other Jewish writers mm-hmm. of the yes. Ottoman Empire. They focus is, on the cosmopolitanism. Of, yeah, yeah, and they're so in love with it and like they and to the point that and all, especially because this is like a boy raping empire of course they're going to find ways of like uh, of fucking murderers about, too. Yeah, talking about how and amazing murders. and wonderful it was and right. uh, Noel Malcolm, he 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 approaches it from here's how Europeans viewed the Ottoman Empire, oh, right. which I, 
I think it's a, and while he tries to contrast of the actual history of it, it's it's more of a history of modern European thought, which is why I think it's such a good book. But oh yeah, it's probably the best of them I've read. Midnight at the Pair of Palace, by the way, which is uh, more of like a I late stage. Charles King, I don't have any definitive proof he's Jewish, but the way he writes about stuff and the fact that he's got a book called Gods of the Upper Air, which is basically a hagiography of people like Boaz and other anthropologists that completely destroyed the notion of race, makes me wonder if what his actual background is. That's going to be one of my next books because, yeah, he's a... One thing I recall from... um, um, from Malcolm's book is that if I remember correctly, he, he makes a point that a lot of the, like the contemporaries of the empire, uh, what, once they were able to read about what was going on in the Balkans, they, and in the Ottoman empire, they were actually kind of outraged, but also kind of nuanced about oh, yeah. a lot of the, the issues, uh, in the Ottoman empire, which shows you that there's more freedom in the middle ages in Christian Europe, you could actually like freely assess the Ottoman Empire without any strong idea. Like you were free. There were many ideologues and and really theological types that were really enraged. But there are also many people that kind of looked at it and said, you know, let's see what we can learn from them. Um, you know, this is a good thing. This is kind of like a, a gray area, moral grayness. You know, the, this kind of it's not that relativism is good, but if you want to fight something like the Ottomans. You need to know what it is. Well, know? he makes a point of this, in, and I actually have the, the passage, passage uh, pulled up here. He makes a note of this because the Janissary system in the Ottoman Empire was originally not like non-Muslim. It was it's deliberately yeah. designed for Christian boys to basically be turned into these fanatically loyal servants right. and slaves to the sultan but because of all these privileges you got with it eventually like the muslim population was like well we want in on that and they were deeply right. disturbed by what they saw so here's from right. uh, useful enemies the soldiers were less valiant and this is when the rot was creeping in the soldiers were less valiant than they used to be because of the venality which had which has crept in among them. The whole court and structure of government had become venal too. Everything is sold there and given to the highest bidder, even the most menial and petty positions. Bear in mind that those who get these posts hold them only for two, one or two years, and having paid a high price for them, they commit intolerable extortions on the people. The best Timar estates were so valuable that everyone at court lobbied to obtain them. The pashas, the eunuchs, the mutes, the dwarfs, and even the women. The result was that they no longer had resident Timariots to govern the local people, and they raised fewer soldiers in wartime. In the Janissary system had also been corrupted with with Muslims paying to get their own children into the Devshirmay into the Devshirmay yes. in the hope they, that they wanted would to become rise, a system of patronage, yeah, rise to high office as adult as adult Janissaries. Uh, whoops, as adult Janissaries. Uh, these native Muslims would revisit their families in the provinces and hear their complaints about the tyrannical oppression which they received. 
They would then return to Istanbul determined to avenge their parents and would demand the execution of senior pashas, something that did not happen in the old days as the ex-Christian Janissaries were taught to hate their families and to be ultra-loyal to the sultan. This constituted a definite sign of the decline of the monarchy. Such an opinion about the decline of the Janissary system was shared by 17th century Ottomans too. In 1675, a retired Janissary officer, Said Ali, son of Mehmed Effendi, would write a treatise on the subject confirming Saveri de Brev's remarks about Muslims. I think we stopped screaming, by the way. Oh, shit. Wow. Sad. Sorry, yeah. I don't know what was going it's on. It's okay. There. It's all right. It's yeah. all right. Okay. I think it's back now. Okay. okay. But yeah, you get um, the point of all that. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, for sure. I definitely recommend that book. But again, I, I have very – I think in in the scheme of things, though, the the Ottomans were kind of an anti-cultural power. Yeah, uh, in same thing as America. That's why I compared it to it Very all the time. similar to America. Yes, that's so true. Um, very much comparisons, you know. Uh, so yeah, anyway, let's move on to the next thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, but that should be – if you just email me, I'll give you the full list if you need it uh, uh, for us. Yeah. Uh, uh, Podcast Nation donates. Uh, Morekow Wen donates. Hail Striker, Hail Borzoi, Hail Xi Jinping. And uh, <laughs> Lord Aragorn donates a dollar. Superman was always gay to me. Hail Striker. Oh, yeah. I fucking I, – even as a little kid, I hated Superman. I always hated the, 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 the heroes that had superpowers. Oh, I, the only ones I liked were the Punisher and uh, Batman when I was little. And by the way, again, friends, this is a entertainment for children. Um, so, you know, let's, uh, you know, I, I was listening to a guy who's very uh, astute on things recently, Richard Anania. He's very, very good, very, very much worth listening to. But he, he was complaining recently. Yeah, but he, he's a libertarian. So that's his thing, right? And so he was complaining on some on some thing where he reviews movies and shows. He was like, "Why can't we show rich people as the good guys? Is that even possible in this woke society? Rich people as the good guys?" You you have that. He's, he's called Iron Man. It's, you literally have called, that. It's called Batman. Yeah, it's Batman called like the five remakes of Batman in the last five years, like five ten years. It's but, called fucking. It's called Spider Man, who's a yeah, journalist. No, but literally, literally the conception of like two, of them, the Batman and Iron Man in their conception are both yeah. fucking billionaires, and they're and yeah. the way and writers attempt to figure out like how do we make these people into good guys? Like that's like this has been the the that's retarded the comic book drama for the last seventy years. I mean, th- think of the concept of Batman. Batman is a rich guy. But what's his power? Well, his power is that he's really hardworking and industrious and creative. And so what's the message there? Well, he earned his billions, right? Bruce Wayne deserves to be super rich because he's super creative and selfless and uh, clever and and, uh, ingenious. So the idea that rich people are getting a bad shake in the media is just stupid. This is dumb. We got one more here, and then we can get out of here. Real quick, uh, this is Mariah Cowan. Uh, real quick, can we get a word or two about the Iraqi elections or the street fighting in Lebanon? Apologies if I missed you talking about it earlier. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I haven't been following it too closely, but um, clearly, 
there's some monkey business going on in the Iraqi election because they're having to recount the vote. And this isn't like Donald Trump, like, so they stole it. You know, this is actually like they're for real now. um, So they're recounting the vote and they seem to be finding discrepancies in the result because the pro-Iranian groups got really a really bad result. Um, And they were protesting, saying, this doesn't add up. Here's another thing. The Iraqi election had a record low turnout. No one went to vote. So there's a lot of stuff, discrepancies going on there. And yes, in, in Lebanon, I, I've just um, just been following it kind of superficially. Um, but yeah, like this is some crazy shit. Like every time Hezbollah has a political march in the streets of Lebanon, they get ambushed by snipers and five people get killed. Uh, who the hell are these snipers, Right. What, what, what's going on? I mean, it's obviously some glow nigger shit that's going on there. And for Hezbollah, their main their main cross to bear is to constantly be literally sniped at by what are ostensible Sunnis, Sunni uh, ISIS types, uh, and so on, uh, and not retaliating. Because if they retaliate, then then there's a civil war. So there's actually kind of an interesting dynamic going on that you see the United States is, is complaining about where when Hezbollah is is attacked like that, they, they seldom directly respond in sign of Lebanon. What they do instead is they call in the Lebanese army to go and get the, the attackers. The Lebanese army is the, the is, is ever is, is, is ends up getting the uh, ends up having to field the, the issues there, right? Because if, if Hezbollah, the Shia militia, attacks the Sunnis, then that's going to just spark a civil war. Because frankly, a lot of the Sunnis are just kind of dumb. Um, not all of them. It depends on the country. But they're just easier for the CIA to manipulate or they're just spending a lot more money trying to manipulate them. Um, and the Maronite Christians in Lebanon is, is similar, but in a different way. Maronite Christians aren't necessarily going to shoot at Hezbollah, but they're they're engaging in kind of more legalistic uh, gay ops against them. So the, 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 the policy is let's avoid another sectarian conflict, which is very wise, you know. So can they do it? We'll have to see. All right. You want to head out? All righty, Borzoi, play us out, friends. So, yeah, sorry about the buffering, everybody. Hopefully, Frank can help us we'll, out. We'll in the have future. it figured out next week. Yeah. yeah it's not- we're, we're building back better. <laughs> have a good night, everybody. Uh, take care. Mm-hmm.